a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 114, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comics series. This episode, Marvel's licensed comics, cover dated January 1979, including Star Wars number 19, Human Fly number 17, Micronauts number 1, Godzilla 18, John Carter, Warlord of Mars number 20, and Marvel Super Special number 8, featuring Battlestar Galactica. Hello and welcome to the comic book Time Machine, and it, this is the Marvel Cosmic Comics series. And what we do here in this series, if you are not familiar with it, is we look at Marvel's science fiction and fantasy licensed comics from 1977 through 1986, which is the Star Wars era. And there's some good stuff, and there's some stinky stuff, and... I have opinions about both. So <laughs> so here's the way this works. Um, there's the fantasy that we pretend, which is that we are going back in time to the spinner rack where we are buying comic books for 35 cents. Now, we need to make sure that when we are traveling back in time, we only take coins that were from before 1978. We don't want to, you know, accidentally cause any kind of monetary time paradox by accidentally leaving a... 2001 quarter. So as we go back and look at the spinner racks, we get to see what is on the shelf that Marvel is publishing that is not one of their superhero lines. Um, now, there are a couple things that are getting left out as we do this. One of those things that is getting left out is Planet of the Apes. Uh, we left that out. We left out Conan um, and Crawl, not Crawl, Call. Crawl, we are doing. <laughs> Call is we are leaving out. Red Sonia, we are leaving out. We're leaving out some of those because there's just so many of them that to do that in that way lies insanity. We also will not be covering G.I. Joe or Transformers on Marvel's Cosmic Comics, even though they do overlap with this era that we are talking about, but they go way beyond. And so this is taking us from uh, the basic guideline from the first issue of Star Wars through the last issue of Star Wars. Now, we will end in the month of the last issue. With the first issue, we did start out with 2001, and if you haven't listened to those older episodes, um, I, I, I invite you to do so. There's some fun, fun stuff that came uh, with 2001 before uh, Star Wars started. And, and then John Carter, Warlord of Mars, also started one month before the Star Wars comic book started. But here we are. We are not. Well, I mean, we're 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 a year and a half in or so. I mean, Star Wars issue number nineteen. We are over a year and a half through. But uh, what we're doing here is we're looking at the comic books that were cover dated January nineteen seventy nine, which for the most part were released onto the shelf onto the spinner rack in October of nineteen seventy eight. There is one exception to that, which I talked about in the last segment, but here's the exception. Well, 
Uh, let's start with what we already know. You know, as I look at the spinner rack, as I went back in time in my comic book time machine, uh, here's what I found. I found Star Wars number 19, which will be the first thing we cover in this round of Marvel's Cosmic Comics. I saw John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 20. There was also Godzilla, number 18, continuing the shrunken Godzilla saga that began in the last issue. There is the Human Fly, issue number 17. Now, just be, just to let you know, apparently this was a month that had five Wednesdays, and so there were actually two Godzillas that were released in uh, onto the shelves in October of 1978. But we're only going to look at the one that was cover dated January. The other one is cover dated um, February, and that will be in the next round. Uh, that just makes it easier to index for, for me because that's on the cover of the comic. But uh, So that is one extension past October. And then there's a, one other thing that's a little bit weird. Um, there's one thing that's really cool and one thing that's really weird. And the weird thing is that there was a Marvel Super Special released in October, on October 10th, um, and that is Battlestar Galactica, and it's the official adaptation of the television sensation, and we are not covering that for this month. We're going to wait because what was in this book was actually printed in comic book form over the course of three issues. So we are going to take a look at it in the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin to just kind of peek at it and see some of the extra stuff that's in it. But we're not going to take a close look because those are issues that will be indexed as individual issues. So the Marvel Super Special that we're going to talk about for this in this month, it's just going to be a quick mention in the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin, which is the final... The, the, that's when I wrap up coverage for each each month. So there's some weird stuff. The other cool thing that was the weird cool thing is... This was on stands last month, so when I took my time machine back in time, blah, 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 to go back and see what was on the uh, the shelves last month, I saw this, but the cover date was January of 1979, so I waited until this trip back in time. Micronauts number one. So for this round of January 1979 cover dates, we are going to be covering Star Wars number 19, John Carter number 20, Godzilla number 18, Micronauts, number one, and Human Fly, number 17. And then we will mention and talk a little bit about the Marvel Super Special, number eight. So that's what you have to look forward to for this month. And honestly, there's some exciting and fun things. Um, all of it sounds exciting and fun. The only one that doesn't sound exciting and fun is Human Fly. We will see... <laughs> We will see. I'm holding it in my hand right now, and I'm not sure what order I'm going to go in, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to do Human Fly after Star Wars just to get that out of the way. So, without any further ado, I'm going to play the sounder. We're going to move on and start our coverage with Star Wars, issue number 19. Let's talk Star Wars. I love to talk Star Wars. You know, um, they... I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again, but they they bill this comic book as adventures beyond the greatest space fantasy film of all. It is definitely the greatest space fantasy film of all. Um, and then on the front page, the first page rather, Lucasfilm presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of them all. You know what? I'm taking that too. It is the greatest space fantasy of all time. 
And there's some parts of it that aren't the greatest, but taking the best parts of it, those best parts definitely, I believe, earn and deserve the title of greatest space fantasy of all. Not every issue of the comic book will be, but every issue of the comic book so far, you know, I don't think there's been any stinkers. Uh, as I look back, there's been some really fun stuff. There's been some crazy, wonky, weird stuff. Um, that behemoth issue with uh, Han Solo and his Magnificent Seven, including the giant rabbit. That was cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, Obi-Wan Quixote or whatever, but... Uh, it's, it's good. I, I, I'm enjoying this and I, I'm loving the fact that I get to read these comics. I'm doing it for the podcast and one on one hand, but on the other hand, I'm doing it to have fun and to read stuff that I haven't had a chance to read before. There are some issues of star Wars that I've had a chance to read. There's, you know, issues of Battlestar Galactica that I read before. Um, I, I did read all of Devil Dinosaur and the Godzilla series. I've read those before Micronauts. I've read Micronauts, but it's been a long time. I've read ROM, which will be coming up at some point. It's been a long time. So it's enjoy to re- it's enjoying to revisit uh, the old stuff that I like, and it's also just a lot of fun to visit new stuff. And this issue here, new stuff. Now, it's uh, Archie Goodwin is the writer and editor. The uh, artists are Carmine Infantino and Bob Wyasek. Uh, Irv Watanabe is the letterer. A guy named Gaff is the colorist. <laughs> they only list him as as Gaff as the, as the colorist, but um, his name is Carl Gafford. Uh, and Jim Shooter is the consulting editor. So we begin this issue the way we left off the previous issue, um, sort of. Actually, <laughs> the, the splash page for this issue uh, is almost the exact same as the cover from last issue. C-3PO holding Luke Skywalker in his golden tin arms as R2-D2 is messing around with some computer stuff. And for this issue, we are, we are coming into it after the team has come to a place called the Wheel. It's a space station. They keep calling it a man-made space station as opposed to a naturally occurring space station. Uh, but they, um, they came here because they thought they'd be safe from the Empire by coming to this space station where there's, there's an agreement. The Empire doesn't mess with what's going on at the space station. The problem is them, just their very presence is giving the Empire an excuse to come to the space station. Now, the space station is run by a guy named Senator Grayshade. And Senator Grayshade is a corrupt senator. Um, and uh, Princess Leia knows of him and does not have a very high opinion of him at all, which apparently he deserves that very, very low opinion. Um, the reason they had to run here is because they came across uh, a wreck, a merchant ship, that looked like it had been attacked by the Rebel Alliance. And it was actually, their, the Rebel Alliance is being framed because the merchant family that owns that ship is going to um, lash out against the, the Rebel Alliance. It's the Imperials that are doing this. It's just one more way of uh, trying to draw them out and have them taken care of once and for all. The Wheel of Death is also um, known for its uh, vices. Uh, it is devoted to pleasure, primarily the pleasure of gambling, which in a kid's comic, it, sure, we, we'll run with that and we'll go with that. It probably would be more pleasures than just that if they were, you know, not... If this was today's uh, rated T, which I don't even know why they put ratings on comics anymore when every single comic that Marvel produces is rated T. So 
there's even a joke about it being rated T uh, in the Man-Thing comic book that recently came out that I don't like that much. But that is a story for another podcast series about swamp monsters, and we'll get into that soon enough. So in this issue, everyone's split up. Everyone's going their different ways. Han Solo and Princess Leia are escaping one way. Chewbacca is going another way. C-3PO and R2-D2 are trying to help Luke, who basically had a um, force feedback shock when he was reaching out with the force, and now he is unconscious and in a coma. And that is why C-3PO is carrying him. Um, you know, if you've ever seen that cover of Superman holding Supergirl in his arms, she's dead. Well, that's what you're looking at here, only it's C-3PO instead of Superman and Luke Skywalker instead of Supergirl. So the story itself basically follows all these different groupings of people. Um, R2-D2 helps C-3PO and Luke Skywalker by um, using computer manipulation to cause doors to come down. Uh, There's a really awful scene (laughs) I don't know if it's awful because of uh, I can't imagine being in the situation or if it's awful because it just logically doesn't make sense. But the stormtroopers are shooting at C-3PO and Luke Skywalker just as R2-2 causes a blast shielding door to come down and the bullets ricochet off the door and the walls and they just shot themselves uh, over and over again. There's tons and tons of blaster impact points all over the place and they're all down. But uh, they finally get Luke to the doctor, and then they manipulate the computer to give permission to the doctor to uh, operate on Luke, even though he's not registered in the, sta- in the station as a resident of the station at the time. And that's pretty much the, uh, the droids and uh, Luke. Oh, there is one more element with the droids, and that is that they are taken into custody as as property of the space station because they've been used as uh they've been pawned to give han solo money to gamble with (laughs) so what happens with uh princess leia and han solo you know flipping flashing back to them is that gray shade sees princess leia and she wants he wants princess leia stormtroopers are coming after princess leia and han solo but the space station's security goes and gets them and 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 basically rescues them from the stormtroopers, but then they separate them. They take uh, Princess Leia to Senator Grayshade, and then they um, take Han Solo and basically say, you know, your cooperation is the only thing that's keeping you alive. And so they allow Han Solo to stay on the ship, or on the space station, rather, as long as he's able to get the money to pay to stay. And so he has to gamble, and that's where he uses the money that he gets from pawning uh, C-3PO and R2-D2. But he keeps losing, and so he loses all that money, and then uh, he's pointed in the direction of a poster by a droid that says, hey, uh, you know, you can still gamble even if you don't have any money. It's just for the, the stakes, you use your life, and that is by entering the ultimate gamble, which is high risk, high reward, be a gladiator in the big game. And he reluctantly enrolls in the big game, and Senator Grayshade is shown, this is... This is our cliffhanger. Uh, Senator Grayshade is shown, and his his robot says, uh, hey, what are you going to do about this? And Grayshade says, we're going to make him lose the big game, just like we made him lose all the little games. So it was all rigged against him from square one. Princess Leia, on the other hand, um, Grayshade wants some information, and Princess Leia is glad to give it to him as long as it keeps Han Solo safe. 
um, because the information is that there's someone who has been stealing money from the, the, the wheel, and it's, it's the Empire. The Empire is causing problems because they want to come in, and she explains the whole plan to Grayshade that um, the Empire wants to create a situation where they can just come in and take over. Instead of just getting taxes, they can get everything. But Grayshade instead just makes a deal with the Imperial officer <laughs> that, um, that is coming to do this. And so Princess Leia, you know, she reveals this plan to him, and he, he now knows and has that knowledge. But he uses that knowledge to, you know, create a win-win for him and for that Imperial officer that was sent to do this. Finally, we have Chewbacca. And Chewbacca... <sighs> So, I'm talking about the story right now, and we're going to talk about the art in a moment here, but in this, I mean, Darth Vader is hard to draw. That we, We've come back to that time, time after time after time. He's hard to draw, especially when you are you know, doing it from memory after seeing the movie, and you don't have all the different things, uh, all the different photo references and that kind of thing. Um, and I get that Carmine Infantino is a stylized artist. He draws some very, very stylized artwork that works. It's angular. Um, it, it works. Until you get into some of the fantasy stuff that isn't supposed to look realistic. So you have a human character, and he draws that, and it kind of has a caricature to it. It works because you're familiar with the human character, but his, his Chewbacca... Uh, now, his other aliens look great because he made them up, and they're just from his pen. They're awesome. But Chewbacca looks like Ralph the Dog from the Muppets. You know, it's Ralph the Dog Bounty Hunter or something like that. And he just doesn't... Oh, my goodness. It just doesn't look right. Now, if this had been the original model for Chewbacca, I actually think it would actually work really, really well because he's big, he's beefy, um... He has shorter legs. And so, this is one image, though, of him jumping. And he's just got this huge butt. Just this giant, giant Wookiee butt. And it just... It doesn't work. It doesn't, he doesn't look like he would move the way that Chewbacca moves in the, uh, the movie series. Now, I haven't watched much of the Clone Wars to see how Wookiees move in uh, that cartoon series. But in the movie series, Chewbacca has a very specific gait that is not this kind of hulking behemoth gate. I mean, he he swings his arms and stuff, but in this, it's Ralph the dog crossed with Big Bigfoot. And it just makes me laugh every time I see him. It doesn't... It, it takes me out because it makes me laugh. Now, does it look great? Yes, if this was not Chewbacca. But it... Oh, it just doesn't work. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. The Chewbacca subplot has him getting to the um, to the meeting point that he set up with Princess Leia and Han Solo and the droids. But the problem is he's not registered to be on the space station either. That's a big problem for all of them. And so he goes into this casino, and he's instantly accosted by the bouncer, or bouncers. And there's a nice turn, page turn where the bouncers come and say, hey, you are you shouldn't be here. And he punches one of them who's just a human and then you turn the page and you've got this creature and I didn't notice it was the same creature as on the previous page because on the previous page where they first come to him that creature is blue and looks a little smaller so when I turned the page I didn't this creature that fights 
Chewbacca is just giant and green. But I think it's meant to be the same guy based on the teeth. He has these giant fangs. Um, it's a good page turn. It's a really good page turn. I'm not sure how this would have worked with ads. I'm reading this in the Star Wars omnibuses that Dark Horse put out. Um, so I'm not sure where this would land as far as uh, the page turn with the ads and stuff. But it's a, it's a good page turn. And then the, there's three panels where they're having a conversation about Chewbacca. And um, in the third panel, it's just Chewbacca's hand is kind of covering up the the bouncer's face. And, he, and then the final panel is the bouncer just getting thrown out the window. But then security comes, blasts Chewbacca. He goes down. And he wakes up. And he's in the gladiator pits, and that is going to lead us to Chewbacca's cliffhanger, which is they are going to be putting him in. Um, he's either going to fight, or he's going to end up in the the spy the spice not the spice mines the spine mines of Kessel. So whatever that means, I wonder if that's another one of those um, those errors. But this is all leading up to the death game. Next issue, Death Game. So artwork-wise, yeah, like I said, I like Carmine Infantino's artwork. The problem is in the um, the fantasy characters that are established. Uh, I don't mind so much the actors that are established. And even uh, the, the Stormtroopers look good in his style. Uh, R2-D2, and, and maybe it's because like I lived you know, for, what, almost 40 years now, with um, R2-D2 action figures that actually had the right proportion with the shape of the dome and, and that kind of thing. But these issues here with Carmen Infantino, it's just very stylized. And there's there's room for that in in space sci-fi, sci-fi fiction. It's just uh, it's when it's licensed stuff. Now, later on, you know, modern licensed comics, you get even worse where you'll have them, they hire... Because the the price of the license, they'll hire cheaper artists, and then the artist can't even use the the model of the character from the actor because the actor doesn't want them to. But in this situation, um, the human characters all have the right attributes to look like the person that they're meant to be from the movie. It's just Chewbacca. It's just Chewbacca for me. So that's it for Star Wars issue number 19. Next segment is going to be Human Fly number 17. We're just going to get that out of the way. So this issue is issue number 17. And on the cover, it says murder on the midway. And it shows human fly blasting out of a cannon. And there are people all behind him. And there's a banner flying that says the human fly. And there's a booth with refreshments and hot dogs and there's some rides, and there's lots and lots of people. No one is being murdered on the cover. At least nobody we know of. Because when we get into the story, we are going to find out that the murder victim is the human fly himself. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with human fly. There were some issues that were so bad, they were good And there were some issues that were so bad, they were terrible. (laughs) Just not good at all. Um, Which one is this? Well, we'll get to it. Here's the deal, though. I mean, Bill Mantlo is the writer on this. And actually, in doing some looking and research into the Micronauts, which I will be doing in the next segment of this, um, 
Bill Mantlow is the writer of that as well. And so I've been – that's the interesting thing to me is Human Fly is Bill Mantlow. Micronauts, ROM, Rocket Raccoon invented by Bill Mantlow. He's done some stuff that I am a huge, huge, huge fan of. But I'm also not the kind of person who just because I'm a fan of someone or a fan of something, I just automatically give it a pass. It's not an automatic pass that I give. It's it's a it's a semi-automatic pass that I give sometimes. But I all that said, because of my background, knowing I've read Micronauts and I've read ROM. Both of those I've read through the entire run. It's been a very, very long time since I read it. But I loved it. I loved it. I remember liking ROM and liking Micronauts and liking the end that we got from Bill Mantlow on that first run of Micronauts and the end that we got for ROM from Bill Mantlow and just the intricate plotting and storytelling that was going on and the sci-fi concepts that are being played with. And I'm going to sing the praises of Bill Mantlow and those sci-fi concepts when I get into Micronauts and ROM. But with Human Fly, I am not getting into that because... (laughs) It's not. It's not great. And I think part of the thing is exactly what I thought. Um, In the research that I did, he was the go-to guy because he was the fast turnaround guy. He was the guy that could go to and say, we need a script. We need it now for this issue right here because we need a fill-in or you know something like that. And he could turn around and, and, and crank out some good work. I think that's part of the issue with the human fly. A lot of what was being done on the human fly was being done very, very quickly and being done just on the fly, so to speak. Yeah, that wasn't even good enough for me to, (laughs) that wasn't even good enough to merit stopping the recording and, you know, finding a sad trombone. I I just did it vocally because it it didn't even deserve an actual sad trombone sounder. Anyway. Um, with this issue, it, it's kind of interesting that I am doing two these two Bill Mantlow comics back-to-back. One, Human Fly, that is not considered by anybody I know of. There might be someone out there, but not considered by anyone I know of to be a classic of comics. It is a um, novelty. It is a curiosity. It is an oddity uh, because of this whole, you know, the wildest superhero ever because he's real and because of the mystery behind the actual guy and because of it just being what it is. But there's no issue that I would say you must read this issue. It is except for maybe I, I, whatever the wacky races issue was. And, and that's just because it was so bad. And we get into some of, okay. Again, I, I, I debate how much I actually want to give my, my final judgment on these things ahead of time because I tend to, I think, wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to this stuff and, and um, you know, give away that I liked it or I didn't like it. Um, so let's just talk about the story real quick with the human fly. And the story is very, very simple. No, it's not. Not really. <laughs> and in some places it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense, but some places I guess it kind of does. A guy steals a camera from a little girl at a carnival, a little girl who was taking a picture of the human fly as he was setting up his cannon for his special stunt, which is going to be him firing it out of a cannon and landing in a net that's being held 
by a helicopter. So this guy steals the cannon or the camera directly out of her hands, jumps onto a motorcycle with somebody else is ready to ride, and they speed away through the carnival with this stolen little camera that this little girl had. Humanfly sees this and immediately jumps into action. His plan is to stop them, but then he realizes that it's not just a theft that he needs to deal with. There is a woman pushing a baby carriage right into the path of the ongoing motorcycle. So he throws his ramp right in the way of the motorcycle, and the motorcycle jumps on the ramp over the woman with her baby. <laughs> now, um, I'm seeing this, I'm reminded of... Um, you know, save the cat and those kind of things where we see how good human fly is because of what he does. You know, he saves this woman and her baby. And whenever I see a baby carriage in danger, it it just takes me back to the untouchables and that classic, classic shootout scene on the steps of that famous place in Chicago that I can't remember or don't know the name of, and it might not even be in Chicago, but as the baby carriage is like bouncing down the stairs and they're shooting guns and uh, just right at the very end, uh, I, I think it's Kevin Costner who rescues the baby, stops the baby carriage in time. But then um, now I will never also be able to forget any time I see a baby carriage in danger uh, documentary now, which is a... Um, series of fake documentaries that are are made by a couple of guys from Saturday Night Live whose names escape me and again I it's just not important enough for me to actually look up the names right now bottom line is they did a episode about this uh city this town in um Sweden that has Al Capone days and they they have a, a an entire day just dedicated to a carnival ab- about Al Capone and <laughs> they they do reenactments of the uh, the shootout scene and rescuing the baby in the baby carriage. So anyway, Human Fly saves the baby in the baby carriage, and that's good because that's what Human Fly does. He is a hero, and they land in a pigsty. So, ha <laughs> ha, wah wah, funny. But why? Why did they want to steal this camera? It's not even an expensive camera. It's just this little thing that this little girl's dad gave to her. Well, they develop the film and find out that they were actually tampering with the cannon and setting it so that the cannon would launch the human fly in the wrong direction or just off course. So they look into it and they realize where the cannon is pointing. And the police chief, he thinks he knows what the motivation is for them. And so what does he do? Well, they go ahead and go go through with the stunt. And we have this pa- two pages where the little girl watches and she can't bear to watch. They launch Human Fly from the cannon. And Human Fly goes off course, doesn't go toward the net where the helicopter is waiting, but instead lands on power lines and electrocutes himself. And he just fries himself. And he he's just up there on the power lines, dead, maybe. Uh, the little girl is crying, and she says she cries even though she knows it's going to turn out okay. And then we cut away from that to some bank robbers who are using a special weapon to open a bank vault. And they're using this distraction of the human fly's death, which has now caused all of the cars, all of the uh, the sheriff county officers, their cars to go to the county fair. And they can rob the bank without having to worry about police coming after them. Except when they open the vault, they are met by bright lights. Not police car lights, but 
news camera lights and and human fly and police are all waiting the news people human fly and police are all waiting inside the vault for these two guys to get into the vault and yes indeed the human fly that we saw get launched into the power lines and get fried by the electricity is not the actual human fly no it was a dummy that they sent and then we got back to the carnival where they have now realigned the cannon they launch the human fly uh after of course he gives the little girl a really nice camera they launch the human fly into the air the human fly goes over the power lines and lands with a flip in the net on the helicopter and it's everyone's happy (laughs) and so here's the thing there's some charm to this story there really is some charm to the story it's narrated by the little girl and the little girl it's not i mean there's not a lot of real voice to it it's just she she talks about um uh she talks about writing and, and telling stories and so when the uh when the bad guys are launched up into the air to land into the pigsty, um, she says the motorcycle hit the ramp, the flight swung in front of it and took off over the woman and her baby over the wall and parked trailers behind them and up into the air like a bird or Icarus or something. And like my daddy says, whatever goes up has to come down. I think daddy called it a cliche. And I don't know. There's just something about, the writing here with this little girl narrating it. There's another point in time where she, she interrupts the story herself as the chief of police says, I think I know, uh, I think I have an idea why they're doing this. And then the narrator, she says, as the chief explained, my eyes got real big. I had no idea. My snapshot would be so important, but my daddy, who's a writer (laughs) says that I shouldn't give away the drama of the story before it's done. Well, we return to the fairgrounds as if nothing was wrong. And so there we have, it's just those things, those little asides. It gives some charm to the story. Now, at first I wondered, like, is we're on page, what? It was 15, page 15. We're at the staple in the halfway point. And all we've been dealing with is this motorcycle and this stolen camera. And so I was wondering, is this, is this it? Is this what we're going to get? And then we get to the, bank robbery and and the whole thing that there's this plan going on and then they launch you know human fly into the air and it's okay so the 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 fake out looks close to real okay now it's they they dressed up this dummy and they launch him in the air and he lands on the power lines you see just electricity surging through the dummy and then the panel after that this fried black charred body is smoking just on the power lines, just laying there on the power lines. And the little girl has a tear in her eye and it's, and she says, uh, I know this sounds silly, but I cried then, even though I knew everything would turn out all right because at the same moment and then blah, blah, blah. Um, it's kind of a disturbing sequence there of this fake out. And so then you have the actual stunt after they capture the people, which capturing the people, I mean, that is a ridiculous moment where the police and the news camera people and the human fly are all there waiting to arrest these guys. I mean, that's 
today I could almost see it really actually being a thing because of the way we have our our uh, you know 24 hour news cycles and and social media and you know the police would want you know to have um, some good publicity through this but it, that was just goofy. Then they do the stunt, and you know the human fly stunt things for me are. I mean, it's a comic book, and so it's done up in grand comic book style. But it's a stunt, and you know he's going to be okay. And then every once in a while they throw in these little, you know, just weird sci-fi angle things, like the the one jet uh, jet sled that he was on that actually could glide you know and, and jump off the tracks and so it looked like it was going to crash but then it actually leaps off the tracks and, and like glides away or whatever like they don't even set it up and so you don't even know that you're supposed to expect some sort of weird twist to the stunt in this case it's just the stunt going off without a hitch but the stunt itself is kind of dumb if you really think about it uh the stunt itself he is still being launched over those power lines that is <laughs> like why would they do that? And he is being caught in a net that's being held aloft by a helicopter. And I understand, you know, a helicopter is one of the few um, flying vehicles we have that can hold its place. But, I mean, if they're off with their targeting just by a little bit, he he might miss the power lines and end up in the blades of the helicopter. Like, that just seems really dangerous. And I know, I get it. It's a stunt, you know, and stunts are meant to be dangerous. But, um it just the whole thing is absurd. It's not dangerous. That dangerous is the wrong phrase because I'm not worried about human fly ever. Uh, it's absurd, is what it is. I think more interesting would be is if they uh, actually <laughs> had used the cannon or, or something. But I do like the element though of you know the the camera is being stolen by uh, the you know the guy because the guy saw the little girl take the picture of them messing with the cannon. I like that element. That's a fun little element. And there's charm in the narration. And so the points where it's absurd or ridiculous, I don't mind. I don't mind that much. Um, In this case, I was pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly surprised at how pleasant and non-offensive this was. (laughs) So, Human Fly number 17, thank you. Thank you very much for reviving my faith in Bill Mantlow before I jump into the Micronauts, which is going to be the next segment of this series. Micronauts issue number one. It's coming. It's happening. It's finally here. Thankfully, we had John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and Star Wars as our linchpins up until this point. But Micronauts, ROM, Battlestar Galactica, these are all things I've been looking forward to. And they're all coming very soon. Oh, Star Trek too. I mean, it's all coming. And Human Fly, just a couple more issues. Because next, from Human Fly, we have a two-part story. It says, next, a brand new two-part Human Fly adventure be here. I don't know what it's about. I just know Human Fly is going to be in it, and it's an adventure. Okay, so all I have to say right now is finally, finally, we are here. We have the Micronauts. I mean, I've been waiting for this. 
I have been waiting a very long time for this. Now, the on-sale date for this issue was September 19th, 1978, which is different because most of the other books that we're looking at for this section, this um, cover date of January 1979, hit shelves in October. This one hit shelves in September, a month earlier, which meant that it got an extra month on the shelf because it hit shelves in September, but the cover date of January meant it was taken off the shelves or was supposed to be taken off the shelves by people who were um, selling them in January. So it got an extra month to have this first issue of the comic on the stands. And, you know, I mean, this is one of those books like Star Wars that uh, Marvel was was taking a risk on. And this is actually a bigger risk than Star Wars was. Um, I would say it's a bigger risk than the human fly in some ways. Um, actually, no, I... <laughs> That's, that's kind of silly uh, because the Micronauts was a really, really popular toy. Um, well, we'll get, in, we'll get into the background there. Uh, but first, let's get into my background of the Micronauts, my Micronauts story. Um, when I was a kid, I only owned one Micronauts comic. And which one doesn't matter. We will get to it when we get to it. But I got it as a party favor from a friend's birthday party when I was living in Ontario, and I was super disappointed in it, honestly. I remember the other kids getting comics with characters I recognized, like Spider-Man. And uh, I don't know if there's any Superman. I, I remember seeing a Spider-Man comic and an X-Men comic and thinking, I wish I had that instead of the one that I got, the, the Micronauts comic that I got that featured this weird character on the front. And uh, the character it featured was Bug. And it just, I, I, I was really disappointed. I think there was even a kid who got a Star Wars comic. I, I, I really think that the, uh, whoever the, the, whoever the parent was, uh, just went to the stop shop, the stoppy shoppy as it is, uh, remembered by me because it was spelled, uh, S T O P P E S H O P P E. And they stopped at the stop shop and probably just grabbed one copy of, um, a different comic uh, and just grabbed a bunch of them and, and put them in the the little bags with the candy and the little thing you blow in and it extends, you know, I'm talking about like a weird tongue blower thing. You know what I mean? If you don't know what I mean, don't worry about it. It's not important. What's important is I had this comic. I ended up reading it and liking it, uh, but I was disappointed because, you know, at first I was disappointed I this was a comic from a toy I had that just fell apart. Like it literally fell apart. I had the Time Traveler Micronaut toy and it was an orange one and it was meant to be taken apart and it had all these interchangeable parts which would be great if you had other toys to interchange those parts with but I only had the one guy and uh it fell apart and while I thought the toy line was cool because the back the, the card um that had the the, the 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 toy came on the back of the card had a whole bunch of pictures of a whole bunch of cool play sets and vehicles and and other cooler looking characters and I had this just kind of bland looking robot guy I didn't know anything about him and the toy didn't last very long because one by one slowly the pieces just fell off and got lost and eventually <laughs> the last piece fell away and that toy just faded out of my my toy collection. I don't know I don't know whatever happened with it. I if it got thrown away or 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 what. It just eventually was not a part of my toys. 
And so that was my first introduction to the, the Micronauts. Like I said, I did read the comic. I read it quite a bit because I read all of my comics over and over and over again. But um, I ended up kind of liking the comic and the weird character on the front. Well, we'll get into that comic when we get to it, like I said. The second Micronauts comic that I got was the issue with Man-Thing as a guest star. I got this as an adult, and I got it when I was filling, uh, you know, collect, doing my weird collecting, which is collecting things about characters that I like at the time. And so at this point in time, I was filling in all of the holes of my collection of Man-Thing comics. So I had finished the actual runs of Man-Thing by Steve Gerber and Man-Thing, the, the second run, which was with uh, ended up featuring Chris Claremont. And then I started getting the, you know, just the appearances of him. And so I got that comic book as, as part of that collection. After that, though, and then this happened about... 10 years ago we were visiting my sister-in-law who lived in Ontario and there were two comic shops in the town that she lived in and one of them it was a nice shop it had more expensive uh, high-end back issues but then also had tons and tons of cover price and lower than cover price uh, graphic novels it's a nice little shop the other one was a smaller shop with a smaller selection also a little dingier um, as far as the the way that shelving worked and stuff and and there on the floor under a table was um some bargain bins i don't remember the price on the bin i am not sure if it was a quarter bin i can't remember that i don't think it was a quarter bin i i think it was a 50 cent bin i know it wasn't a dollar i i know that because um i was very pleased i was getting all these comics for less than a dollar each so that's what makes me think it was a 50 cent bin i i don't remember but when i got down, you know, kneeled on the floor and start flipping through the, the box. And, and those of you who um, have done the whole back issue search, you know, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I found some Micronauts comics and I keep flipping through the box and realize this isn't just some Micronauts comics. This is all Micronauts comics, <laughs> all of them from issue one of the Micronauts that I have in my hand right now to issue 20 of Micronauts, the new adventures, the the second series that um, came out right away after they, they did the final issue of, of the first series uh, to the X-Men crossover miniseries. <laughs> they were all there. And apparently someone had brought their collection and, and sold it to this guy. And, um, and then this guy just put it in there and, uh, you know, I had to do some digging. It wasn't all just right there from, you know, one through whatever in numerical order. Um, they were out of order and they were mixed in with other comics, but they were all there. And so um, I got them all except for the ones that I already had. <laughs> and I, I have to say it was one of, if not the best comic shop, comic book shop find of my life. And for some reason, it just always seemed right and fitting that I should find that collection while I was visiting Canada. Um, yeah, but anyway, best comic find, comic book shop find ever, and not because of the exchange rate of Canadian currency, which I think was pretty good back then, if my memory serves. But even if my memory doesn't serve well, it it's not because of that. It's because, honestly, it's a fantastic run of comics. This and ROM are two of the reasons that I would consider, no, not just two other reasons, I, I think they are the main reasons 
I would consider Bill Mantlo as one of the greats of comic book writing. I mean, he took these two toy lines, well, one toy line and one just toy with Rom. I mean, there was no toy line with Rom. It was just one toy. It was that character. Uh, But he took these two toy lines and he turned them into legitimate sci-fi properties. And the series are not perfect by a long shot. Um, There are some issues in storytelling. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the issues in storytelling here with this issue. But I've always said, uh, always, that these comics are better than they had any right to be. These comic series are better than they had any right to be. And it is a shame, it is a downright shame that the rights to these licensed books mean that they are not going to be reprinted in um, like an omnibus edition of ROM or an omnibus edition of, of the Micronauts. It can't happen and without a bunch of, you know, figuring out rights and details and I don't think it's a big enough or an important enough series for them to go ahead and try and navigate all of that now we got the essential Godzilla and that's a a great thing and we have the omnibus of John Carter and that's a a great thing but um with ROM or Micronauts you're going to have to go and find the back issues now Micronauts did have some reprinted uh, editions. I believe they came out around the time that Micronauts The New Adventures uh, was hitting stands, and, and they, they reprinted at least like 1 through 12 or something like that, and they reprinted one or no, they reprinted two or three issues in each one of those reprint editions. Um, and so those are also, you know, those would help you in your, your search if you wanted to try and, and seek out uh, these back issues just to read the stories. But I... I just feel like it is it is a shame, it is a real shame that these can't be enjoyed by more people in easier ways than than they are right now because they're as far as a series goes, the entire package, the the whole of each one of those is it's worth reading. It's it's good stuff. It's good sci-fi comic book storytelling. It includes Marvel um guest stars um, like I already mentioned, there was a crossover with X-Men. Uh, Rom and Micronauts both are a part of Secret Wars 2. But um, it, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. And I'm so glad, so excited to, to start with this. Because, I mean, honestly, um, <laughs> one of the things that prompted me to even do this podcast in the first place, not just the Marvel's Cosmic Comics, but to actually get into and doing the comic book time machine was the comic book time machine was going to be my venue to be able to do Marvel's cosmic comics. Uh, and so when I found out that both Brom and Micronauts ended in 1986, which is the year star Wars ended kind of an end of an era of licensed books that they had. Now they had licensed books after that, but they were different in tone and they were different in style. And they never did the same thing as this. Now, Transformers and G.I. Joe went past and beyond 1986, but um, the Micronauts, ROM, Star Wars, all those things ending in 1986, just it was kind of an era of, of these licensed books. So that's what prompted me to do this and caused me to research some more, and eventually that's what led to this, Marvel's Cosmic Comics, and, and led to this moment... And led to this comic. So, yeah, let's take a look then at the backstory of the Micronauts as a book. Now, I mentioned this is part of a toy line. 
And um, Mego Corporation is the American uh, distributor and and seller or reseller, I guess, maybe, of this franchise, uh, the, the Micronauts. Now, before they did the Micronauts, they had done a ton of different things. And they're especially famous for the 70s franchise toys like um, World's Greatest Superheroes with with their Marvel and DC heroes and Planet of the Apes and Star Trek and all sorts of franchises. I think they had Happy Days and, and different things like that. But they had all sorts of franchises that they were doing these toys with. But they wanted to have their own toy. And that's when in 1976 they started... Uh, they they got the the rights to do the Micro Man toys from Japan. Now um, this information I got here comes from a website that's defunct and doesn't exist anymore, and is actually only available if you go to the Wayback Machine on archive.org. But it was called Tom's Microman Zone, and I, I really I mean I just pulled this from that, and of all the places I looked, this is one of the better ones, kind of explaining what Microman was. Um, by the end of 1975, the website says, Microman had firmly established itself in the Japanese toy market and was well on its way to becoming a household word. The huge success of Microman has been attributed to at least three major factors. First, it had a sci-fi theme, which was great for stimulating kids' imaginations. This would later become a requirement of all toy lines with the release of Star Wars in 1977. But in 1974, Microman was ahead of his time, and the kids really got into it. A second factor has got to be Microman's unique approach to the idea of scale. When dealing with toy figures, it is obviously necessary to scale them down from real life, as was done with G.I. Joe and others. But unfortunately, this causes kids to be excluded from the character's world, at least in a physical sense. But Takara, which is the toy company from Japan that, that created Microman, came up with a clever way around this. In Microman's universe, he was not a normal-sized person. He was actually 10 centimeters tall. So this meant that the figures the kids were playing with were the real Micromen. Adults thought he was just a toy, but the children knew that Microman was alive. It was a brilliant marketing strategy, one which really brought the Microman universe down to earth for children. Later, Takara added an environmental theme when they introduced the enemy, Akrier, whose mind had become twisted due to pollution in the environment. Kids were encouraged to stand up and fight alongside Microman to save the earth from these problems. This further emphasized the world Microman inhabited was really our world. Finally, there was at least one other important factor, and that was interchangeability. With Microman, any single toy was actually several different toys. And if you combine two or more, the combinations became staggering because they all used the standard 5mm parts, were never limited to a single function, but could be placed anywhere on that toy or on any other Microman vehicle or even the figures. The fact that the figures were just as interchangeable as the vehicles was a novel concept, which had been carried over from Henshin Cyborg, but Microman brought it to new heights. The world of Microman was an ever-expanding one. So that's just kind of an overview of, of Microman as it existed in Japan. Another thing, another article I saw somewhere uh, mentioned something about, you know, these small toys actually fit into the smaller... Uh, living environments uh, of apartments that the, uh, many Japanese families were finding themselves in at that time with expanding cities and stuff like that and it fit in their house better or fit in their apartment better than in, a, in a, a larger toy wood in a larger house and also the price was able to come down lower and and it also was cheaper to produce because it was a smaller amount of plastic that was needed so anyway, that's Microman uh, from Japan. Well, Mego licensed these toys, the Microman toys, and actually a couple other toys from Takara and, and put them out under the Micronauts name in 1976. And it sold really well for them from 1976 to 1980. And actually around the time when Star Wars came out, it ended up being 
a full third of their entire business was uh, income from the Micronauts toys that they were doing. The, if you think about it, the timing was just about perfect because the size of these figures was the same scale or the same size as the Star Wars action figures. And the sci-fi theme also you know, fit well. And uh, the only problem was there was no real backstory to the Micronauts like there was for Microman, <laughs> at least not yet, uh, which was a problem for for me in some ways when I was, you know, I had that time traveler figure and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it did. I don't know why they called it a time traveler. Or, uh, all I knew was he's kind of bland and, and dopey looking and he had a lot of cooler toys on the back of the card that I didn't have. So there's that. Uh, now other toys that I had that didn't have backstories didn't matter because they were just like regular people. Like I had, I love the Fisher price adventure people. Well, they didn't need a backstory. They just, you know, they had a canoe, so that meant they were canoeing, and they would go on camping adventures. And I had the stunt van with the motorcycle and the um, the kayak and the parachute, and they were stunt guys. And I didn't need the backstory. Now, I also provided my own backstory to tons of these toys, and I would switch things around with my GI Joes and my Star Wars guys. And my Star Wars guys weren't always you know Star Wars characters. I sometimes made up new characters. My GI Joes the same thing. And so my Fisher Price kind of fitted all my Fisher Price action figures, and I also had some Tonka, um, Tonka people who were the, the right uh, scale, but they were much thinner than than any of my other ones, and just they always look kind of weird next to my my other guys. But anyway, they all work nicely. Like I said, <laughs> with uh, um, yeah, my my uh, time traveler guy. I mean, he just kind of disappeared over time, so. Anyway, um, the backstory wasn't there, but this is where you get Bill Mantlow in, who is the writer of Human Fly and lots of other stuff. But as far as I'm concerned, the important thing right now here is Human Fly. And on Christmas of 1977, he discovered these toys because uh, some of them were given to his son, Adam. And according to an, an article... In back issue number 76, I have right here, quoting the article, uh, returning to Christmas 1977, Bill's son Adam had opened his Christmas presents with the typical enthusiasm a child has when tearing open wrapping paper like the Incredible Hulk on a rampage. Four of the boys' gifts caught Bill's eye. The Micronox figures, Space Glider, Time Traveler, Acrier, and Galactic Warrior began giving him ideas and concepts for a new series. One week later, Mantla walked into the new editor-in-chief Jim Shooter's office to convince him to get the rights from Mego to do a book. Shooter's first act as head honcho at Marvel was to ask for new ideas from creators. Mantla then gave Shooter his Micronauts proposal and began working. So that was... <laughs> what a neat thing, you know? What a really neat way for <laughs> this to begin. I thought Mego came to Marvel. Um... I mean, that was just what I assumed until I was reading this article, but it just seemed like that was the way it went. Uh, Marvel might go and, and seek it out, but at this point, I figured with the success of Star Wars, that Mego came to Marvel and said, hey, you guys did the Star Wars thing, would you do Micronauts? And then uh, they assigned Bill Mantlo to it because, hey, he's quick and he's good. But that was not the case. Rather, it was the opposite. And I think it's a really neat origin story there. Um, 
so then Bill Mantlo had to come up with the background and the storyline for the toys. And something similar would later happen with Transformers and G.I. Joe. And I wonder how much of a, um, you know, almost a test run the Micronauts were for that. Uh, as far as they just, they have the toys, they have the box of toys and they have to figure out who are these things and what do they do? What do they care about? And, and why are they, why are they cool? <laughs> why do they have uh, playability? Uh, again, uh, so the back issue from tomorrow is, is one um, resource that I have, but then I also have uh, another uh, resource where that gets into Micronauts, and that is um, Michael Golden, The Modern Masters, Volume 12, and it has uh, some, an interview with, with Michael Golden, and uh, he talks about working at DC before he went to Marvel, and um, he basically was working on three books at, at DC and was very happy working on those three books at DC. But then you had what they call the DC implosion and his books, which were Mr. Miracle. And, um, he was doing some Batman stuff and some man bat stuff, but, uh, his, his stuff got, got canceled. And, and so then Marvel came to him right around that time and said, uh, they, they wanted to work for my, on Micronauts and they were offering him $10 more per page. And so, um, the whole idea of him, you know, working on this though was because uh, nobody else was interested in in doing it because it was a licensed book, is what he he thinks, and so they they had you know basically the new guy to the company do it. Uh, now B- Michael Golden was not the original artist on this. Bob Hall is the artist who worked with uh, Bill Mantlo to come up with the original designs of the characters, but then Michael Golden came along and he. He made it all come together and, and made it all work. Bob Hall helped with concept creation, but Michael Golden uh, was truly one of the, the one of the storytellers, along with Bill Mantlo. Uh, in fact, he helped come up with some of the, the story concepts that they were working on and, and things like that. So uh, he he said that it was interesting working on that licensed book, but. Um, but there wasn't an approval process. He says, quoting from that article, or from the interview, rather, in Modern Masters, Volume 12, uh, there was no approval process that I was aware of that might need a big qualifier. You might ask Alan, Al, Mil- Al Milgram, the editor, about that. I'm not sure. As far as I know, there was no approval process, and I would probably stick by the statement, seeing as how that book was late from the word go. And then he goes on to explain, um, it was my first exposure to a situation that occurred to me repeatedly at Marvel, where I was told they wouldn't schedule the book until they had four issues completed in the drawer. Then, like a couple weeks later, they'd call me up and tell me I was four months late. And that's what happened on the Micronauts, is that I'd said I'd do the book, and we got everything together. I was wrapping up my stuff in D.C., or at D.C., then moved across four states. And as soon as I got a phone in the new state, I called up. And they said, oh, by the way, you're four months behind schedule. And from that point on, it was just me cranking out work. And so they did it Marvel style. And we're going to talk later about um, why that might be a little bit of a problem. But Marvel style is when, if if you're not familiar with it, um, a writer or a writing team or the writer and the artist come with an outline of what the story will be. And then the artist takes that outline and just draws from that. And the page layout, the the panel layout, the, the number of panels on the page, that's all determined by the, the artist. And then the artist 
does the whole thing and then that goes to the writer and the writer then fills in the dialogue after um, all of the, the artwork is done. This is part of why we get a lot of uh, the flowery prose from Stan Lee's comics is because the outline that we get drawn didn't necessarily, because of being done so quickly, um, tell the story in the best way possible, meaning Stan Lee would go in and, and add in some some text to allow um, the readers to know what's happening from, from panel to panel. Now, in this, then, you had um, two original characters that were created for the book, uh, Marionette and, and Bug. And those characters were not part of the toy line, but they were created and, and put into the book and became, you know, they're in this first issue, they're very important characters. Uh, speaking of, uh, let's go ahead and let's meet the Micronauts because uh, the page that I would assume would go to the letters column uh, actually went to these descriptions of the characters. And here's how they describe them. Commander Arcturus Ran, who was one of the toy characters. Uh, one of the first space-gliding Micronauts, adventurer, explorers, dispatched in suspended animation 1,000 years ago to the farthest reaches of the microverse. Ran has returned to a homeworld vastly changed from that which he knew. Yet he has spent 10 centuries telepathically probing the unknown and never much cared for the predictable anyway. And then there's Marionette. Princess Mary of Homeworld's royal family. She saw her parents and her brother killed or captured in a coup d'etat and is in, as fierce in her desire to revenge as she is in her hatred for the next character, Baron Karza. Once Homeworld's chief, chief scientist and overseer of the body banks, Karza has offered the, micro, the microverse immortality for a price, total and complete subservience to his wishes. And he gets it. Acrier. Prince of the Acreers. His name is unpronounceable. His fearsome face is never seen. He fights with Spartan ferocity to regain his throne, stolen from him by Prince Shaitan, his turncoat brother whose treachery forced the proud race of Acreers to submit to Baron Karza and to become shock troops in his war to dominate the microverse. Which uh, explains why you have... Acrier as a good guy because in the Micro Man series, I mean, Acrier was a bad guy. Anyway, uh, Bug, master thief of the insectivorid race, feisty and fearless, he's a galactic warrior at home with any manner of weapon. Biotron, one of the original 6000 series of thinking robots, he has become obsolescent during his 1000 year sojourn with Camp Commander Ran, and he doesn't like the idea. Microtron, a personal roboid, jester. Tutor, servant, and guardian to the Princess Mari. The Shadow Priests. Having first appeared on Homeworld 1,000 years ago, they had assured Karza that their religion would aid his science in capturing the hearts and minds of the microverse. Unsure of himself then, Karza had agreed, thinking the, pi the priests could be dealt with at the proper moment. Yet, 1,000 years later, that moment still hasn't come, and Karza himself, contemptuous of a force he considers inferior to his own science, Cannot understand why. And then there's the time traveler, about whom we're not saying anything. <laughs> and then uh, on this page it says, we want to hear from you. Right, Micromails, care of Marvel Comics 675 or 575, eh, doesn't matter. The address is not valid anymore. So those are the characters, uh, the main characters. And there are tons and tons of toys, but those are the, the ones that they, they did this. So, um... 
Yeah, so issue one, the initial idea to even do this book came from Bill Mantlo in Christmas of 1977. This issue went from Christmas 1977 idea to September 1978 on the shelf. So let's talk about this issue. The first thing is the cover. It says they came from inner space. It says the Micronauts. It says fantastic first issue. And then there is a picture. A picture that makes me say, <laughs> Darth Vader is hard to draw. <laughs> because Baron Karza, I, I just got to say it. He looks like Darth Vader. Now, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, it's Baron Karza. I mean, it was a toy that they were designed before Star Wars. And they were on the shelves before Star Wars, and they're drawing from the toy that existed before Star Wars. But if you look at this comic cover, it looks like a Darth Vader ripoff. It really, really does. It's unfortunate, but true. Then you also have uh, Commander Ran, who is wearing a uh, tight blue bodysuit with uh, gold trim, and he's got brown hair and... and He's he's shooting a, a laser pistol. Then you have Acreir, who is right behind him, and he's got a flaming sword with surging with energy. And then you have Marionette right behind on the other side, and Doug behind her, and they both have their weapons. They aren't firing them, but they have them. <laughs> this comic, if you look at the cover, if you like Star Wars, you're going to like this comic. That's what this cover screams to you. It doesn't say it. It doesn't say anything about the word star and the word wars are not even on the page. It says space. That's as close as it gets to that. But it is not. It is shameless in the way that it's saying, hey, if you like Star Wars, you'll like this. Uh, And that's a good thing. I mean, it's dynamic. And it says this is what's in this book. Sci-fi adventure. The pencil of the cover, by the way, is Dave Cockrum, and the inker is Al, Ming- Al Milgram. So the writer, as I said before, is Bill Mantlo. The penciler is Michael Golden. The inker is Joseph Rubenstein. The letter is Tom Orsachowski, and the colorist is Glennis Wayne. Let's talk about the story. Chapter 1 is called Homeworld. Prince Argon and Princess Mari along with a handful of loyal soldiers, are riding through the streets of Homeworld, escaping rebel soldiers who are under the control of Baron Karza, and they are planning to take over the planet. Uh, the prince and princess escape the dog soldiers and escape the acrieurs, who are um, armored warriors who have these cool uh, winged jetpacks that actually kind of remind me a little bit of uh, streamlined, scaled-down version of Vulture's wings from Spider-Man Homecoming. But anyway, they escape them barely. Um, most of the soldiers get killed by pulse rays. Pulse rays are weapons that kill, but do not destroy, and therefore the body is recyclable and can go to the body banks. Now, the people of Homeworld have joined Karza because while he offers slavery, he also offers immortality along with that slavery. And also, not to follow him will mean certain death. So it's either don't follow, get put in the body banks, or do follow and get to live forever. It's great. They find a safe haven where Argon has summoned the Enigma Force. And this really upsets Mari. For some reason, it's a little hard to understand outside of 
I mean, they don't really tell why, but the context clues that I get kind of suggest to me that she realizes that he knows that this is the end and he wouldn't summon the uh, Enigma Force, the time traveler, if something terrible wasn't about to happen. But Mari realizes this all it's all too late. The rebels have found them, and while Argon fights valiantly, he is captured by Karza's, or Karza's forces, and Karza orders him into the body banks. And that's the last we see of him in this issue. So let's take a look at this chapter, and I'm just going to briefly talk a little bit about some, some ideas here. But um, you start with a lot of excitement. You're thrown into this weird situation in this world you don't know what's going on. You don't know what the world is like. But like I said, there's context clues. It's a little confusing, but a lot of times the beginning of a story is confusing as you then start navigating the story and figuring out what's going on. Okay. It's easy then to figure out once you're at the end of this chapter that there's a rebellion and Mari and Argon are, you know, they're good guys and everyone has joined the bad guys on the planet. So that's not great. <laughs> uh, by the way, Mari looks kind of like a uh, orange palleted version of Dazzler. I, I, that's best I can put up. She has like the Dazzler makeup around her eyes. And yeah. So Mari, it seems like, is able to escape, but I, it's just, it's, there's a little bit of. Um, there's a little bit of fuzzy storytelling going on here. The other thing is the body banks. I'm not sure exactly what happens there. I mean, it's been years and years and years since I've read this. It's you know, almost 10 years. But um, it just reminds me of Soyant Green. And if you don't know uh, what Soyant Green is, then um, you can either watch the movie Soyant Green and find out. Or you can look it up and get it spoiled for you. But it's one of the great reveals of cinema that unfortunately gets revealed to people without seeing the movie. Kind of like the end of Planet of the Apes, the original. But there's also the awesome Saturday Night Live sketch when uh, Charlton Heston was hosting Saturday Night Live and they go from Soyant Green to Soyant Red and beyond. <laughs> it's kind of fun. So then chapter two is titled Homecoming. And in this chapter, the homecoming belongs to Captain Ran. After a thousand years, he's returning home from a mission meant to show that they were not alone in the universe. He was going out to make first contact. He sleeps most of the trip with his robot Biotron waking him at the appropriate time, and now he has woken him at this appropriate time, which is to land at home. And when he lands at home, he's greeted by an honor, an honor guard who open up fire on him when he exits the ship and knock him out. They don't kill him. But he wakes up to find himself in a cell with Acrier and Bug, an, an, insect, an insectivorid. <laughs> but that's impossible in Rand's mind and Bug immediately knows why Rand feels like it's impossible is because he discovered their worlds 700 years ago and ships can't travel that fast because they only have a faster than light drive so they shouldn't have been able to beat him back to his home world but they did because while he was traveling they discovered warp drive and that made he made he had to make that really long trip home but they were actually able to bounce back and forth between worlds pretty quickly and war erupted pretty quickly after contact and had been waging ever since. And Baron Karza is not just taking over home world, 
but he has subjugated all who have stood against him and taken over many worlds. In fact, the Acreers are under his control because he has subjugated them. Now, Rand's amazed because Baron Karza was his professor a thousand years ago. Um, but he doesn't know what to think because it's kind of the Buck Rogers syndrome. And it's kind of a neat sci-fi element. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, they're in prison, but it's in a place called the Pleasure Pits. And outside of their cell, the robot, Microtron, that we've seen before, has this female-looking um, creature thing robot that dances as if it has a mind of its own, like a marionette. Uh, but to Ran, she looks too beautiful not to be real. And to the readers, there is no mystery about who she is or what she is. It's obviously <laughs> Princess Mary, but or Princess Mari. And... I don't, they kind of play it up like a mystery a little bit here, but she's acting like she is a robot and people are talking about her as if she is a robot. And this is another one of those kind of confusing things like, where, how did she get from where she was to where she is now? But we'll talk about that again later. And so the sci fi concept that really gets explored here is this idea of him traveling just slightly faster than light. And then you have these other you know, worlds that develop this new technology before he has a chance to re- return home and tell people he discovered people. I mean, it's it's a cool idea. It's an idea that I've wanted to play with and um, just haven't gotten around to writing any stories with that because I didn't I didn't have a real good hook with that. Uh, I did read an excellent story uh, about this kind of thing. Um a while ago but it had to do with a love story where you had one character who have they as they traveled they were um aging more slowly you know planet of the apes does that kind of thing um with their ship where when they their the original planet of the apes the idea is they've been out uh exploring space and they're returning home and they know they're returning home uh to a world that they don't that they never knew uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a cool concept, and I like the way that they, they deal with it here. Rand is trying to deal with the fact that a thousand years have passed and things are far, far more uh, different than he was expecting. So then we have Chapter 3, which is called Escape. Baron Karza and Prince Shaitan and a shadow priest oversee an arena that is about to see mortal combat between the prisoners and a death tank. Also present there, not just the prisoners, but uh, Marionette and her roboid. Um, Micro, microtron. It turns out that there is an underground resistance and that Marionette and Bug and Aquarier and other people are a part of, and they are going to rescue Ran. And the reason they're going to rescue Ran is because he is an X factor to Karza's plans. And so they fight the death tank and they win, but Karza doesn't, it doesn't phase him at all. He doesn't feel any anxiety. He just lets it happen while Shaitan gets upset. So they escape, and they get out of the arena. They're attacked by Aquarius soldiers, and they are joined by the time traveler from the Enigma Force earlier, who reveals to Rand that his Rand's parents were actually the first of the Resistance and have since then become deified by the people of Resistance. And so Marionette actually uses their name as an exclamation. You know, instead of saying, Great Caesar's Ghost, she says, oh, I can't remember the names of, of the parents, but she uses the parents' name as this explanation. Uh, Dallin and Sepsis. <laughs> she says that two times. And when she does that, um, Rand is, who, what did you say? 
those names. And that's when the time traveler appears and explains that they are actually his parents, the first of the resistance. So they board his ship and they're being chased by other ships, but they're able to escape by going to the fringes. And this is where his ship can go through this space wall that marks the edge of the microverse. But the pursuing ships cannot. They just crash into it and they're destroyed. And they have escaped now. But where are they escaping to? Well, next issue, Earth. So here we have, again, some more big ideas. The priest, just in one panel, throws out a whole ton of sci-fi ideas. And and not just sci-fi, but but fiction in general. And, and honestly, philosophy. Um, just throws out that the people have what they want. They have immortality, perfect health, a religion that answers any worrisome questions, and an endless program of entertainment. I mean, it's bread and circuses, you know, from the old Rome um, thing where give them what they want. As long as they're fed and entertained, they'll do whatever you want them to do. And you don't have to worry about losing power. And, of course, then that was the title of the Star Trek episode as well. And it's also brought up a lot in modern culture. There is a lot packed into this issue. And the question might be, is it too much? (laughs) And the answer actually might be yes. I mean, there is so much going on in this issue. And for the most part, it works as long as you gloss over a few transitional kind of things. Um, Bill Mantlo said in that article uh, from Back Issue Magazine, he says, quote, We got to work and produced the most convoluted first issue in the history of comics. Jim and Stan were appalled. What did you do? We can't understand this, they yelled. And if we can't understand it, how do you expect the kids to understand it? (laughs) It goes on. uh, um, Michael and I got extremely depressed and began to try and simplify the storyline without sacrificing any of the sci-fi elements inherent in the book. It's no easy task when you're dealing with immortality, body banks, submolecular solar systems, warp drives, and the like, but we persevered. And so, yeah, for the most part, it works. But I think what makes it not work is actually the whole um, the Marvel method in this situation. Uh, The art itself is just about perfect. I mean, I love uh, I love Michael Golden's style. And when when there are sequences happening, action sequences, sequences, especially there, there's energy and there's vibrancy and it's 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 really, really well done. The problem is when it comes to like the storytelling, like Marionette, there is no explanation at all, like how she goes from being presumably captured. We don't know. I mean, they don't say anything about her being captured and they just mention Argon. But then we go from that to where she's doing this Marionette dance thing with the robot. And... So I, th- I think it's the Marvel method that, that hurts this one the most and does make it a little bit confusing. But on the other hand, this is creating a whole new world. And it's so it's introducing the characters, introducing the world, introducing all the concepts of not just this world. It's not just uh, we're on planet Tatooine and here are the rules of Tatooine. It's not just that. It's not just, okay, we are on planet um the Vulcan and here are the rules of, of this planet and, and not just the rules of this planet, but the kinds of creatures and, and, uh, the, the primary, um, race that lives on this planet. It's, it's not just that it's a whole different universe. We are in the microverse. And so it, it doesn't explain it exactly, but it does, it does explain it a little But Um, 
all things considered, what this book has to do, what this comic has to do, I think it does it. It does it well, and it is there's it's an action adventure story that really tries hard to do fresh and new and exciting uh, science science fiction ideas. So that's the Micronauts issue one. I can't believe we made it. This is a milestone for me. Um, um, it, it truly is a, a milestone for me that we've reached this issue in the uh, Marvel Cosmic Comics. And there'll be other milestones up ahead. There's one month, like I've mentioned before, that I'm very excited about because it features <laughs> it features just enormous sci-fi franchises all in one month published by one publisher. Um, that'll be a milestone. But this is a milestone here. And we've got more coming. I mean, there's, there's not. I mean, this is not the only toy line that they were messing with, and Rom is not the only toy line that they're messing with. There's uh, a couple others, uh, especially Shogun Warriors is coming soon. But yeah, Micronauts number one. There it is. So after this, it's going to be Godzilla. And you know what? Uh, <laughs> remember last issue of Godzilla? Well, it looks like the Micronauts are not the only small heroes we're going to be dealing with this month. Previously in Godzilla, Rob, not the Kenny, but totally the Kenny, Takaguchi, stole a giant robot called the Red Ronin and somehow connected spiritually to this robot thing and then crashed it in a battle. And with he also has something of a spiritual connection to Godzilla and he tricked Godzilla, calling Godzilla into a trap. Uh, that trap used pim particles to shrink the mighty beast down to the size of a house cat, which allowed him to be captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, Dum Dum Dugan, meanwhile, has come around to the whole I don't want to kill Godzilla anymore side of things, along with Gabriel Jones, Dr. Takaguchi, Rob's grandfather, and a new scientist character named Dr. Hawkins. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, we have Agent Jimmy Wu, who is in love with Tamara Takaguchi, but has trouble expressing his love and hasn't had a chance to really have a, a good, quiet moment with her to tell her exactly how he feels. And so those are, those are the main players here. And they are all on this great big giant shield helicar- helicarrier called the Behemoth. Now, this thing was created to carry Godzilla, but they no longer need its size because Godzilla is now, like I said, the size of a house cat. And that is where we find ourselves as we begin this issue. Fugitive in Manhattan. Uh, The writer is Doug Mensch. The uh, penciler is Herb Trimpey. Inker, Daniel Green. Letterer, Diana Albers. And colorist, (laughs) I want to say Sean Bean, but it's Ben Sean. Uh, not Sean Bean. By the way, I saw a really funny meme about Sean Bean recently where basically saying you can't have it both ways, having the Sean and the Bean, and you're spelling it with the E-A-N, but they they are pronounced differently. Uh, it was a lot funnier when I saw it uh, than when I explained it. So anyway, so we start our issue, and Godzilla is in a cage the size of a bird cage, and but despite his size, he's still a mean something-something. Uh, he attacks Dum-Dum through the bars with his tiny little atomic breath and frying Dum-Dum's cigar. Dum-Dum is not happy about this, but someone else is more unhappy, and that's 
Rob because Rob feels like a traitor to his friend Godzilla. Yes, uh, he feels bad that he tricked Godzilla into a trap that caused Godzilla to be shrunk down so that Godzilla couldn't destroy things anymore. Just forget about intention. Godzilla will destroy things just by walking through things. He has probably caused the death of just a few dozen people unintentionally since the first issue. I mean, we didn't see it. Uh, although, no, there's some places where we saw things that there was no way that people escaped that or that everyone escaped it alive. But, you know, that's beside the point as far as, as Rob is concerned. So Rob goes to where uh, Tiny G, not Big G, Rob goes to where Tiny G is being held and he asks for Tiny G's forgiveness. And he tells Tiny G everything's going to be okay. And it's almost, I, I almost get a um, Of Mice and Men kind of vibe from it where he's, you know, tell me about the rabbits, Rob. And, and Rob is just kind of telling him, you know, you're going to go to this place and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great for you. It's going to be incredible. Uh, Tiny G growls in response, quote, a small, soft-throated roar of trust or hate? It's a good question. Uh, so Dum Dum's unhappy. Rob's unhappy. Uh, Godzilla is unhappy. Meanwhile, there are two others who are unhappy. One is Jimmy Woo, who is uh, another of the agents here of, of S.H.I.E.L.D., and the other is Tamara Takaguchi. Um, Jimmy Woo is unhappy because he just wants to tell Tamara how he feels but can't get a chance, and he tries again. But Tamara is more worried about Godzilla and Rob and completely clueless to Jimmy's feelings. So then later, they are carrying Tiny G off the helicarrier, and you'll never believe what happens. Dr. Hawkins drops the cage, it pops open, and Tiny G pops out and into the river. This is impossible because this cage is meant to hold something like a small Godzilla. So Dum Dum Dugan uh, deduces that someone tampered with the cage, and he confronts Rob. And I'm going to go ahead and, uh, go ahead and read the exchange that they have. Dum Dum says, Yeah, unless someone unfastened the spring catch. All right, Rob, you little pint-sized lizard lover. Let's hear it. Did you unlock that cage? And Rob answers, I, I don't know. I thought about it, but I knew I shouldn't. It was real weird. I was talking to Godzilla and feeling sorry for him, feeling guilty, and I I went numb. Numb? Yes, I went into a trance. I just don't remember. <laughs> and so uh dum dum responds i i think the way we all would respond or are responding if we are reading this of all the lame brained excuses well there ain't no more time to waste that thing's loose in the city and there's no telling where he is by now so they just leave it at that uh and it gets left at that for this entire issue i don't even well we'll come back to it but i don't know if they ever come back to it i don't remember i mean i've read this before but I certainly don't remember this whole trance thing that Rob is talking about here. Is it like he's so overcome with his feelings? I, I don't know. I just don't know. It is weird to me. Anyway, Dum Dum's right. They don't, they don't have any time to waste. They don't know, actually, if they have 24 hours or 24 days before Tiny G becomes Big G once more. Uh, 
the PIM particles have been used on humans, so they're able to know how it would work on humans and what kind of, of timing we have here. But for Tiny G, it's it's a guess, and they have to find him, and they have to find him soon. So while the team makes plans, Tiny G makes a break for it, and Rob does too. He fakes an alarm, so some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents will run away from the door where he needs to go so he can go in to this door, steal some diving equipment, and jump off the helicarrier into the river himself. This is the best way he can make an escape. And, yeah, (laughs) Rob. We're going to talk about Rob. Anyway, Tiny G is making his way through the busy city streets, and he finally finds his way into the sewer, and we get... A battle because he is confronted by another monster, a rat. Now, the battle is only two pages, actually two and a half pages if you include the death scene, but Tiny G emerges victorious, of course. And then Tiny G hears a familiar voice. It's Rob. And Tiny G responds and leaves the sewer and finds Rob, but then he also endures the spasm of growth bringing him up from about, you know, a foot and a half or so to match Rob's height. He's now four feet tall. So now what? Rob is fearful, and I think that that's uh, probably a legitimate response. And so he yells at Tiny G, or not as Tiny, Tiny G, to stay back, and not as Tiny, Tiny G, growls in response. A louder, quote, rough-throated roar, but again, of trust... Or sheer hate. Dun, dun, dun. And that is the end of that issue. And all I have to say, I mean, there's actually quite a bit that can be said about this. Um, it says for next issue, Godzilla's New York adventure continues with, among, among other improbabilities, the brawl on the docks. And we'll you know find out more about that. That is something I do remember from my previous reading. It's one of those moments that it was just kind of ridiculous cool moment that you know um i like where they go with this because this is something that allows godzilla to actually have some more interaction with our characters and you know here he's actually confronting rob and confronting rob eye to eye and they're on the same level and so there's some you know there's some good storytelling going on here and you know this is a uh, a logical place maybe to take the uh, the concept of, of Godzilla into some new and fresh places. You know, a question that I've not been asking myself much as I've been reading through this, I have some but not much, is how does this compare to a Godzilla movie? Uh, or, you know, that's what I've talked about more, but the question I'm kind of asking here that's, that's popping up as I'm reading this is, would this actually make a good Godzilla movie? And honestly, I'm surprised that they haven't done this. And I can't think of anything where they've shrunk Godzilla down. I can think of things where they've had small creatures like uh, uh, Minia or whatever the, the name of the small you know baby Godzilla was. But I can't think of anything where they actually shrunk him down into like a, a honey, I shrunk the kaiju kind of situation. But I think about it now and I'm thinking... Honey, I Shrunk the Kaiju, that's that's not a bad idea. I mean, that, that actually could be a really, really good concept. Tiny G versus tiny things, you know. It, it could be a really good concept, or it could be a really, really bad one. But 
yeah, let's take the bad side first. I mean, imagining, I'm imagining a man in a rat suit fighting, uh, you know, a man in a Godzilla suit. And that does not sound great at all to me, period. You know, I, I just, I think about this and I'm, I'm picturing, um, you know, uh, the rodents of unusual size in Princess Bride, which is a man in a rat suit. And it's forgivable because in Princess Bride, it's a light fantasy comedy fairy tale kind of thing. But not the kind of, I mean, not that Godzilla is the most re- reality-based you know, thing ever when you have a man in a suit or whatever. But um, that doesn't sound good to me. But, you know, I, I do think about some of the, the puppet work that they did with some of the spider creatures that they have in Godzilla movies or the Mothra um, larva form and, you know, just different things like that. They, they made it work with, with, uh, with the limitations. And I think that maybe even a possibility would be to use, now, again, I'm not thinking today's day with the CGI and stuff. I'm thinking more, you know, 70s and, and early 80s, but to use like real rats, and like like Willard or or Ben, which I just recently watched uh, those two movies. Um, finally, actually, I, I really have been waiting to see Willard and Ben, and they finally came out. I think it was Shout Factory that put them out on on Blu-ray, and uh, <laughs> they were they were just to put it briefly, um, cheesy delights. I'll just put it like that. They're cheesy delights, and they worked well. Uh, anyway, a nice combination of puppets and um, man in suit and real animals and some really good editing. I think you could end up with a really neat Godzilla story, especially if you take like the model work that they do, th- this you know meticulous model work in the cityscapes that they have in Godzilla movies. And they took that meticulous model work and did the same kind of thing, only blowing up you know like a living room set and a sewer set and and that kind of thing or even a street side you know it just there could be some really really fun and interesting things that could be done with that that maybe would be new um now i'm just talking about something you know that didn't happen in 1977 or or whatever but it could have been neat could have been neat honey i shrunk the kaiju um but there's one other thing that I find myself asking, and, and that is Rob. I mean, I mean, come on, buddy. This is so much of this book oh, it just wouldn't happen without Rob <laughs> screwing things up. Um, I mean, I have to ask, what's the deal with the trance here? And like I said before, I, I don't know if this is going to be picked up later, but What's the deal with this kid and this weird kind of connection to, you know, inanimate objects and, and giant death beasts? And I, I get what they're trying to do with the character. I mean, they're trying to do the same thing with Rob that they do with any kid character in, you know, Gamera and Godzilla movies. And that is, let's get a focal character that kids can relate to. But a lot of times that focal character just ends up being kind of a problem, a problem for everyone. And in this situation, I mean, is he lying about the trance? I, I, I just don't, I don't know. And it just sounds so stupid. And maybe they'll pick up on it and, and it won't sound as stupid. Or maybe they won't touch on it ever again. But something, 
I mean, they obviously had to have Godzilla escape, and they had to have Godzilla. I mean, you're not going to get what's on the cover, and the cover is a really cool cover of Godzilla fighting the rat, and that's not going to happen unless Godzilla can escape. But I much rather have Godzilla escape from you know his own strength and his own desire to get out, rather than this weird trance thing that that Rob is <laughs> claiming happened. I mean, maybe he's lying, but. Uh, the question I'm asking myself with Rob is, if I was a kid reading this, you know, going back to you know, seven or eight year old Benji Avery, little Benji Avery, would little Benji Avery like Rob? And I just don't know. I would like to give little Benji Avery the benefit of the doubt and think that he wouldn't like this character. But then again, I mean, little Benji Avery wasn't. I mean, he he read what he had and he watched what he could. He didn't have all the choices that you know kids these days have. And I think he might have just liked it because the only thing he had. Because I mean, little Benji Avery didn't have that many comics. And if he had this as a comic, he would have probably accepted it just because he had it as a comic. But anyway, <laughs> it's really frustrating because <laughs> I mean it gets the plot going, but it's dumb. My final observation, and then we'll um, close this one down and get ready for the next segment. But um, the title, Fugitive in Manhattan, it just suggests what I can't help thinking of. Muppets take Manhattan. I mean, that's where my mind goes. Jason in Manhattan. Uh, It just suggests to me, you know, show tunes and bright lights. And there's none of that in this, really. There's just him fighting a rat, which, honestly... um, I would have rather we didn't have all the Rob stuff and just go straight to the sewer, just get Godzilla in there in page five and let the you know the remaining 12 pages just be him fighting lots of rats or something. But I don't need the Rob stuff. I don't need the Jimmy Woo stuff. Just give me monster stomping action. And you know what? Tiny monster stomping action is just as good as giant monster stomping action as long as it's there. And the way they did it here with the rat, perfect. Monster versus monster. I mean, anything can be a monster if you're a small enough scale. So that is Godzilla issue number 18. And now the next segment will be John Carter, Warlord of Mars. So this issue is the fifth chapter in Chris Claremont's run on John Carter, Warlord of Mars, that he is calling the Master Assassin of Mars. This is Chapter 5, and I just want to say, I probably should save this to the end. In fact, this is the final note that I made, but I just want to say, there, where are the Master Assassins? Or the, I guess, where is the Master Assassin? I have not seen a Master Assassin show up in this book in a little while now. Uh, it's just been a lot of fighting and John Carter and Deja Thoris pining for each other as they have been separated. But like I said, we will get to that. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start the cover. This cover, the cover to issue number 20 of John Carter, Warlord of Mars is a wonderful, wonderful cover. Um, If, okay, uh, on my Swamp Monster podcast 
feed that I do, I talk about judging books by their covers. And for my Swamp Monster collection, a lot of what I have is, I mean, there's Man Thing and Swamp Thing stuff and the Heap stuff that I bought because, you know, I want those stories and those are good stories. But some of the other stuff I have, especially the uh, horror anthology stuff that I have, I buy it based on maybe I've heard there's a good story in there. Maybe it's just really, really cheap. Um, like I found some really, really cheap weird war stories um, issues recently at Tom's Vintage Toy Store, which is two blocks away from my house, which is way too close. Way too close. I love you, Tom. I do. I appreciate all you do. But you tempt me. You tempt me. And sometimes I cannot fight that temptation. And I bought a bunch of these weird war, weird war tales is actually the... the the issue, or the, the title of the book, and the covers of these issues are usually just really fantastic and weird. And so I'll judge also then, I'll buy comics, because there's a cool swamp monster on the cover. And usually the story inside does not match the coolness of the cover. But I'm judging that book by its cover. And if I were to judge this issue by its cover... Boy, oh boy, I, I love it. Now, um, the this is by uh, Carmine Infantino, and Rudy Nebras uh, inked it. And honestly, you've got John Carter, who is front and center. And okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about composition. And you know, I don't, I'm I'm not an art teacher. I've just spent a lot of time around art and spent a lot of time talking about cover artists about uh, talking with artists about the cover of different books that I've been involved in and a lot of what I've learned about art and what I've learned about especially a good cover and what I've learned about you know it even goes back to my you know college art classes where I used to just make up stuff when I would (laughs) we did we when we would answer questions we would just make up stuff and just try and give the answer that would sound like what the teacher wants and that that art teacher, I feel so bad for him because we were so disrespectful in doing it because he bought it. I mean, he, he'd be like, yeah, yeah. And it'd just be, oh. And we just, after he'd turn away from us to you know have someone else answer, we'd just sit there and giggle. And our papers that we'd write for art class were so, like, fake pretentious. And ugh, we weren't the greatest kids. But that was college. That was a long time ago. I've changed since then, I promise. Anyway, um... This cover is really interesting because it has so many of these things that I've learned about, like uh, drawing the eye in and and letting the eye, you know, guiding the eye around the page. And so front and center is John Carter, but even more directly center is this like um, jeweled red buckly kind of thing that is attached to his leather harness that he's wearing. And it is direct center or super close to it on the page of the cover. And it's just this red dot so like if you squint your eyes like that's gonna you know that's gonna stick out to you is this red dot that is on this main character and his face he's got this just this rage on his face and his arms are outstretched with a dagger in one arm a sword in the other Um, but his sword is in a backswing and it is crossing with another sword that's in a backswing that belongs to his partner in the war and so you have these two guys who then are you know pale-skinned, because this is uh, the place where they are in this issue is not red-skinned Martian place. It's it's a different place where these Martians have 
pale skin like a, a Caucasian uh, human. And they're both fighting, you know, and so they're they're like this the, that color of blob that 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 pale skin color blob is the other you know primary thing in the center of this whole thing and then as your eye travels around and follows their arms and follows their swords you see just these this horde of barbarians hairy nasty neanderthal looking barbarians who have these jagged spears and jawbones of a creature that they're fighting with and john carter's sword you know, you can tell from the artwork that it just is continuing an arc. Uh, and I said he's in the backswing. He's actually the end of his swing. He's not, like, starting a swing. Um, but there is a fallen barbarian who's laying on the ground, his face grimacing in pain. And there is a brown splotch, not red, but brown, like, splattering away from his neck. It's clearly meant to be blood. Clearly not colored to be blood. Um, I don't know if it's colored that way because this is approved by the Comics Code Authority. But it's just a fantastic, fantastic, barbaric, um, brutal action cover. And the question is, well, does the interior match the exterior? And that is always the question. And we will be looking at the interior now to see how well it matches up. But the cover, uh, I mean, I, I would buy this based on just judging by the cover. Unfortunately, if I was buying this by itself, which I did, I did buy it by itself. I do actually have the issue in my hand, uh, which is nice because there was something in the uh, the letters page that I wanted to address that was interesting to me. But um, I have this issue in my hand and it's one of the you know i don't have the other ones around it i don't have like you know 18 and 19 and 21 and 22 or whatever but i have the omnibus edition that's my time machine for john carter is this omnibus edition that i have this hardcover collection of all the marvel john carter warlord of mars comics (laughs) and so i have the other stories but if you were just picking this up you are getting you're you're coming in in the middle of one cliffhanger and you're leaving this issue in the middle of another cliffhanger and honestly not much gets resolved in this issue this would be i would guess if you were buying this by itself not a satisfying read as far as story goes it might be a satisfying read as far as the artwork and that but yeah if that's your only john carter warlord of mars issue then you do not have a very good um Entry point, let's put it that way. This is not a very good entry point into the John Carter Warlord of Mars, Master Assassin of Mars storyline. So let's talk about that storyline. Leading up to this point, John Carter and Dejah Thoris have found themselves trapped in this underground society called Karanathor. Karanthor. Karanthor. Something like that. And this is different than most of the other Martian societies because, like I said, they do have these pale-skinned Martians who live there. And the males uh, grow wings, and that is one of the things that kind of proves and shows that they're a real, real man, so to speak. Also, red Martians are there, but they are slaves. However, when the leader of the people there sees Dejah Thoris, he takes her for his own, and they are separated from each other. Now, both John Carter and Dejah Thoris are biding their time until they can find the opportunity to escape. And this issue, like I said, picks up on last month's cliffhanger, which was this huge battle with these barbarian hordes kind of thing. 
And so they're fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And the only reprieve really comes when John Carter just says he's had enough of this. He reveals his super strength to his friend Garthen, the other guy from the cover, grabs him and jumps away from the battle up into a tall wall, one of the, the walls surrounding the city. And he tells his friend not to reveal his powers, and his friend agrees. Then they return, and they are greeted as victorious by Garthen's father, Gar Karis, who was a great warrior in his own right and the leader of the army. And there's some platitudes there about, you know, this is a great victory, this is great because you guys destroyed so many of these bad guys that we can easily defeat them. That ends up not being true. There is more war that needs to happen. But there's an awkward panel here as Gar Karis heaps praise on John Carter and just ignores his son. Well, after we after this happens, we find out the backstory that Garthen would basically rather sing and he has no wings. And this is a problem. His father does not want him to be a poet and a gardener. His father wants him to be a warrior, you know, because dads want things for their kids. And also he has no wings. That's also a problem because he's not able to do the same kind of battle that his fellow warriors are able to do. So time goes by. There's more war. There's more fighting. John Carter enjoys the war. He enjoys the fighting, but he's still planning to escape. He plans to scale the walls of the valley above. But while he's planning, he continues to fight their war. Meanwhile, Tomar, that leader guy I was telling you about, is flaunting Dejah Thoris by his side. And John Carter is very upset about this. Very, very upset about this. We've talked about this. Before, we're going to talk a little bit more about this whole arrangement that John Carter and Dejah Thoris have as they're biding their time. But one thing leads to another. We get another awkward scene with the father where the father you know, says, if only my son chose the way of the warriors, then I would you know, accept him the way that a father accepts a son. And John Carter just can't understand this, just can't understand this. Finally, one night, Garthen sneaks into John Carter's room, which is a huge mistake because John Carter does not like people sneaking into his room when the lights are out, and he almost gets killed by John Carter, but John Carter stops himself because he's smart, he's quick, he's quick on the uptake, he's a good guy, you know, he doesn't want to kill people except, you know, barbarians, but he doesn't want to kill Garthen, and so Garthen lives and tells John Carter he has an escape plan, a better escape plan than this whole rope climb thing that John Carter wants to do. This is a tunnel that he has found that leads to the outer world. An outer world that, by the way, none of his people believe in. But he's willing to go to this place that he doesn't even believe exists because he wants to get away with his girlfriend, who is a Red Martian. And of course, his father would never approve of that. So Garthen and his lady love are sent on ahead by John Carter while John Carter goes to rescue Dejah Thoris. And there's a scene that's really actually re- very reminiscent of the recent Wonder Woman movie where John Carter, because the the way that the, the city is built is they are built in, I guess, I always get this wrong, stalactites, stalagmites. I can't remember which one's hanging and which one's growing up, but whatever the one is that's hanging, they've built their cities kind of into that because, like I said, the men have wings and the women are just going to have to walk up long staircases and across very dangerous bridges to get from place to place. But the men have wings, so they can fly from place to place. And so John Carter leaps to the one where he's supposed to go to, and he, he uh, lands on the outside of it, and he's climbing up, and it's, it's a really cool 
um, visual of him, you know, using his Earthman powers to, to do this. Dejathoris is waiting and doing nothing, just laying in a bed crying, and Tomar comes in planning to take her physically, but the rape is interrupted by John Carter, who finally, well, I mean, there's a big battle between John Carter and, and Tomar, and John Carter struggles to even stay alive in the battle, but finally he's able to give Tomar a good sock in the jaw and knocks him down, knocks him out. And they make to, they make to run away, but two guards find them, and one says, summon the Night Watch, and the other one says, no, we'll slay them ourselves, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and that's the end of the issue. So... Uh, there's a lot, actually, as I was making notes, a lot of things that I would like to talk about. I mean, one, just starting at this cliffhanger, they kind of pulled the punch. By they, I mean uh, Chris, Chris Claremont, and depending on how interwoven the Marvel method was with whoever he was working with here, which, oh, I forgot to talk about the, the credits. Chris Claremont, the writer, artist is Ernie Colon, letterer is John Costanza, and colorist is Bob Sharon, and Pat... Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade. If you are listening, um, <laughs> um, whenever I see John Costanza, I don't think Costanza. That just that's not stuck in my head. I think can't stand ya, can't stand ya. Um, and actually, funny enough, that's actually the episode of Seinfeld that I heard. Uh, that I I say heard because I wasn't actually watching it, but I was in the room as my wife was watching it. Uh, that was that was the episode that was on last night. So anyway. Pat, um, you mentioned in, in an episode, you talked about John Costanza and how you know he's trying to get his name stuck in people's head. It's not the way it's stuck in my head, but his name is stuck in my head whenever I talk about John Costanza, but I always think, can't stand ya! So, anyway, uh, cover date was January uh, 1979, as I said before, on sale date October 24th, 1978. I love that it was, you know, that's just a couple, a week and a half after my birthday, after my fourth birthday. Cover price, $0.35. Cents. Editor, Roger Stern. So I feel like they pulled the punch in the cliffhanger here. And what I mean is they get caught by guards. And Tomar is laying on the ground. I don't think he's dead because it was a mighty punch, but there's nothing said about him being dead. It's possible that he is, but I think that he's going to be brought back in next issue. There needs to be, you know... If they're not going to escape right away, then he needs to be a part of that whole situation. That's my my guess. But they think he's dead. And one of them says, let's summon the night guard. And then one says, no, we're going to take care of this ourselves. And I'm just looking at that panel and just thinking to myself, I mean, I, yeah, John Carter's tired. But it's John Carter and Dejah Thoris. It's two versus two. These guys are guards, and they might be great guards. They might be the best guards because they're right there where, you know, Tomar's place. But they don't have a chance. Like, this is not a cliffhanger where I'm wondering, ooh, what's going to happen to John Carter and Dejah Thoris? I might be wrong. They might get taken, and, and maybe the next issue is going to be about them, you know, getting captured and put in prison or whatever. Uh, but I look at this cliffhanger, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a cliffhanger for those two guards, man. Like, what is going to happen to them? They are going to die. I might be wrong. But that's just my impression as I as I see this this cliffhanger. So going back then to Garthon and his his father and son problem, you know, his father keeps saying things like if he chose the way of the warriors, and I'm just thinking to myself, I mean, he doesn't have wings, and yet of all the the soldiers, they show him and he and John Carter 
just defeat barbarian after barbarian, especially in that opening battle. And I'm just thinking to myself, if your son can totally beat up a horde of barbarians at the gates, and he wants to be a gardener, who cares if he doesn't choose the way of the warriors? This guy is a warrior. Let him be a gardener while he's not beating up hordes of barbarians at the gates. Just let him. Uh, sure, maybe he's not going to be the general that you want him to be because he's not going to take your place or something like that. And maybe that's an issue, you know. But I've always appreciated uh, my father because he was into sports. He was uh, all-state defensive football player in high school, and he um, didn't play high school, uh, didn't play football in college. But football was very, very important to him. And my earliest baby pictures have me holding like a football toy, a little uh, squeezy, squeaky. Uh, chew baby toy that's a little football guy who's holding a little football and it's all cute and i had a little shirt with a little cute football guy on it who's like kicking a football and shoes flying off now this is when i was what one two three years old i haven't really developed my real interests yet but um, when my interests did start developing it was star wars it was super friends it was cartoons it was science fiction it was fantasy and my dad never once begrudged that. And, and I even remember one time asking my dad, um, you know, do you ever wish that I played football? Do you ever wish that I, I did those things? And I, I did. I played on a um, flag football team in junior high. I played t-ball. I played softball. I did basketball. I did sportsy kinds of things because they were fun in elementary and in junior high. And in high school, I did a church volleyball league. I loved volleyball. That was my... That was the one sport that I really felt like I could be good at because I could be I could support the people who really were good and we could be successful. And one time we won the sportsmanship award because we came in second place and the, the that final match of that second where we got second place, there were two really bad calls by the ref. Really bad calls. And they involved me, both of them did. And we just had a good attitude about it and we won the good sportsmanship award because they told us later on, yeah, those are bad calls, and but you guys didn't complain. You know, it, it was good. So, but I was never like really into sports, and my dad gave the you know the kind of answer that um, I've heard other people give before. But he's you know if if you are a garbage man, I just want you to be the best garbage man you can be, and I'm gonna be so proud of you if you are. And if you're going to be if you're gonna play sports and you did the best you could, I'll be so proud of you. And, and he was. I mean, I was in all the drama stuff, and I was in all the music stuff, and he, he showed up. He was proud. He bragged the way a, a father should, you know, with all of his friends. And, you know, he still brags on me um, to this day because – and he brags on my sister and my brother too. I mean, he, he loves us, and he's proud of us, and none of us followed his footsteps in that direction. I did follow his footsteps in other directions. My dad, he was a, a pastor, and, and I am as well. And he worked, he did lots of stuff with camps and I've done a lot of stuff with camps as well. And, and he worked with, um, men and women who were physically or mentally uh, disabled. And, and I've also got into disability ministry as well. And so there, I followed his footsteps in other ways. And, um, but my dad never pushed me into any of these places. He set an example for me, but he never pushed me into these things. And so my dad would not be like this guy here in this comic. And I strive 
myself then to not be like this guy here in this comic. And I, I never want to presume that my children are going to, honestly, that my children like comic books. You know, I don't want to ever presume that I buy comics for them and they like them because I'm into them. I mean, they, I think they do like them because I like them, but they don't like them because I make them like them. And so, um, yeah, this guy, bad father, uh, this is not good parenting. You know, if you want to raise a warrior, you know, you can't force a poet to be a warrior. It's, it's just not possible. Now, one of the other things that you get in this um, kind of push-pull dynamic of, you know, being a warrior versus being a poet, aside from the fact that this guy, Garthen, is good at both. I can't be stressed enough. This guy, actually, I don't even know if he's a good poet because they don't do any of his poetry. He might be the worst poetry that, poet there. Uh, but as a warrior, he is awesome. He is really good, and he's able to take you know he's he's able to take John Carter's side, and he stands there, and he's back to back fighting these barbarian hordes, and he is helping them win. Anyway, um, as John Carter and and Garthon are discussing this, John Carter says something really interesting to me, and really stuck out to me. He says, "Warriors on Barsoom, talking about his home, are a silver teepee a dozen, but a poet." And this is the part that just really stuck out to me, that Chris Claremont, nice job. But a poet, someone who creates rather than destroys, is valuable beyond price. I love this idea that Chris Claremont is kind of planting here. Just this idea of being someone who creates rather than destroys. And you know, being the peacemaker. Uh, you know, being the one who is nice to other people. You know, that's... Uh, I don't know if I talked about it on this podcast. I've talked about it on a couple other podcasts, but I, I recently had a really interesting conversation with my six-year-old son who was having trouble with the kids on the playground. There's these two girls who were making fun of him at this camp playground, and th- everyone was staying there all week. And so he was having to face these girls every day, and he was really pulling him down. And he would get really mad at them, and, and they would say something mean. He would say something mean. Sometimes he'd say it first. Sometimes they'd say it first. But I just said to him, and it's, it fits here, you know, <laughs> being nice is harder than being mean. It is harder to be nice to people who are being mean to you. It is harder to be nice to people who aren't being mean to you too, but it is easier to be mean. It is easier to just react and not to stop yourself and have self-control. And so I had this whole long conversation with him and tried to equip him with some phrases that he could use so he's being nice to them instead of being mean to them. And it kind of worked. He he tried. He's six, you know, and he's still working through a whole lot of issues. Um, just as a six-year-old as far as, like, learning not to be scared about things and learning how to actually, you know, be nice to his brothers and sisters. And But he tried, and he actually, like, you could tell. He heard what I said, and I was really proud of him. So here, I'm bragging on my kids now. Okay, so anyway, um, that that phrase that John Carter used in this comic just really stuck out to me. <sighs> okay, I've got two more things, and one is more serious than the other, and so I'm going to go with the serious one first, and that is this whole Deja Thoris subplot here. Up until this issue, I get the impression that she's kind of going through the motions with Tomar, and she's got a plan. You know, and 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 she never actually tells John Carter what her plan is. But the implication is the plan is we are going to survive here until we can leave together. And John Carter was actually getting jealous of her because she was acting like she enjoyed being at Tomar's side. Here in this issue, suddenly she's this waiting damsel. 
like I said, she seemed to have a plan, but now in this issue, her plan here just seems to be to wait and cry until the man comes and rescues her. And and when he finally does rescue her, it's like, she, oh, you saved me. And she's like running into his arms. And I don't mind her running into his arms. They love each other. They are a great couple. They really do love each other. And everything he does, he does for her. But she does the same thing for him. And she is a match for him. Now, she may not be physically a match for him. Like if they were, you know, to have like a, a weightlifting contest or something. I mean, he would he would win against anyone who lives on on Mars because he's got Earthman strength. But she is a strong strong character and she joins him in battle. And she holds her own in battle. And she's right by his side. They are a match for each other. And here in this issue, she is just I mean, the artwork where she is waiting, and she's just laying in bed. She, she doesn't know he's coming, but she's just laying in, in bed, and she's just got this weepy, mopey expression on her face as she's, like, lounging on this bed like a preteen schoolgirl who's uh, pining away over some cute high school boy or something. I mean, it's, it's bad, and I don't like it. And there's – I mean, you could explain it away – I mean, the intention might be that she's just been violated so much over so long a period of time that while she may have had resolve at the beginning, the resolve has just melted away until now she just has no will. Uh, and I guess I can almost accept that. I mean, that's it seems like not necessarily a great, you know, character building choice to make for the story, but it, I guess would be an understandable thing. I mean, terrible things are happening to her. I mean, whether or not she is playing along so she can live or it's being taken forcefully, these are bad things that are happening to her, and they're going to take their toll, I guess. But the way this – I mean, the story doesn't have to be crafted that way. And if that's what the story was meant to show, I guess it it is its thing. But it just harms my view of the character in the story. Up until this point, she's been a great, strong character. Now, the whole wardrobe thing is something we can talk about. You know, it's the whole idea that on Mars, you know, people don't wear many clothes or that kind of thing. And, and that's understandable. And, and everyone talks about how, you know, you know, in fantasy, you know, it's part of the culture that they dress this way, blah, blah, blah. And the, the problem is that that's usually an excuse to draw them in a sexualized way especially the women. But, I mean, you know, it's a double standard. The men do, you know, like John Carter is not wearing much in this. I just don't notice it as much being um, heterosexual male. But anyway, this turn for her character in this issue, it felt like her plan is I'm going to wait and cry until John Carter figures something out. She should be waiting for him with her own plan. And then he comes and says, oh, wait, but Garthen has this really good plan over here. I had my plan. You have your plan. But we're going to do Garthen's plan because it's better. Let's, let's go. He knows what's going on. He knows the score. He lives here. He found this tunnel. It's awesome. Let's go. And she doesn't help in the battle. She just kind of stands by the sidelines. And this issue, it just it harms my view of the character in this story. I still would hold her up as an example for a very strong female hero. But... I would this issue goes against goes against that. So that's the serious one. I got to get that out of the way because up until this point it wasn't like that. 
um, he was still the main character and he was still the main mover of the story. His name is the title you know, of the book. And a lot of times he's, he's going away and he's, he's away from her. But whenever she's been a part of his, his story, she's been an active part of his story until this issue. And maybe there's some other times that I'm not remembering, but this is the one. This really just sticks out to me. The other one is as he punches out Thorin or Torin or whatever the jerk's name is um, in the narration. And I, I got it in my notes, but I, I, I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, my first punch winded him. That's great. And it says, my second, as Abner Doubleday would say, knocked him out of the park. And I'm just wondering, really? Really? Abner Doubleday would have said that? Knocked it out of the park? I just have a hard time feeling like that's an actual phrase that Abner Doubleday would have used. I might be wrong. Like I said, I'm not totally into sports. I'm into sports enough to know Abner Doubleday was some Civil War guy who they think might have created baseball or might have been credited as created baseball or um, – I don't think he did create baseball. I'm pretty sure he didn't create baseball, but I don't know because I'm not a, you know, Daniel Butcher. If you're out there, let me know. Did Abner Doubleday create baseball? I don't think he did, but I think people say he did. Anyway, Civil War, 1800s. Are they going to be using phrases like knocked it out of the park like an announcer would use? Because I don't know that they actually had, you know, announcers in times, you know, like before 1900. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an expert. It just felt like a really forced reference, honestly, is what it felt like. Now, Civil War era, John Carter is Civil War era uh, gentleman. He's a soldier. He's a he's a Confederate soldier, you know. And but yeah. So just a note about the art. I don't want to harp on the art too much, but it just it just doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. And I said there's something in the letters page about the art and. Um, what they say is if you went for Ernie Cullen's art on Carter at 16, they're, they're responding to a, a letter where they said that the comic was great. And he loved the art by Cullen and Nubries. If you went for Ernie Cullen's art on, on Carter number 16, then how about this issue? We're trying to experiment here, reproducing Ernie's art directly from the pencils without any inks. We're very much interested in your reactions. Let us hear them. Huh? My reaction is it's, it's not great. It's not. And I don't know. I, I'm curious what the technical process was where they were going from pencils and, and not from inks. Um, Cause everything I know about these older printing processes is that they needed that dark uh, ink color for, for the copying and printing. But I, I do remember when, um, when we did the hedge night, the first uh, George Martin book that I worked on, uh, Mike Miller had an inker, but when they did the sworn sword and the one that just came out, actually um, they, he did not use an inker. He, he scanned in his pencils directly and then digitally inked them. So I know that's a thing, you know, that happened in the last 10, 15 years as far as uh, digital inking and that kind of thing. But I'm curious what the process is here, but it, did not fix things. And I thought maybe the problem that I had with Ernie Cullen's art earlier was maybe it's a bad mix of penciler and inker. And here I see it's not. It's not a bad mix of penciler and inker. There might be another problem that um, has caused this to be an issue. But, yeah, I just I just don't go for the art here. I just don't. But all things considered, Chapter 5 of The Master Assassin of Mars, good stuff. Good stuff. So... 
from here, we're going to go into Ben's bullpen bulletin. And so in the next segment, we'll be taking a look at the interiors of the books as far as ads and, um, and, and text pages and all that kind of thing. So that's, uh, that's coming up next. Ben's bullpen bulletin is my opportunity to just take a look inside at the ads and at the the fun stuff that doesn't get covered as we talk about the stories of each month. And so for this episode, we'll be taking a look at that stuff, of course. But we'll also be taking a look at the oversized treasury edition of uh, Marvel Super Special number 8, which was the adaptation of the Battlestar Galactica TV special. And so we will be um, taking a peek at that. We won't be looking closely at the story because I'll be doing that with regular episodes about those issues when we get to those months. For now, we're just going to take a look at these uh, comic books that are cover dated January uh, 1979 and see what they were trying to sell to the children who were picking these comic books off the shelves. One thing they were selling is, again, Lego. And uh, these these Lego ads that I see on the back in full color just take me back to when I looked at those things and just wanted those moving pieces so bad. These were from the Expert Builder series. And, oh, you can turn a steering wheel and it turns gears that turn the, the wheels back and forth. And, oh, man, there's shock absorbers. There's uh, rear axles. There's joints and universal joints. There's a crankshaft there's working engine gears rack and pinion steering system ah man i wanted it so badly now there was also the 100 piece toy soldier set i wanted that but not as badly and then there was the full color poster spectacular advertisement printed on the inside back cover but the advertisement's not in full color it's black and white trying to sell you these you know color photos of of ms teague's and the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and uh, Farrah Fawcett and Cheryl Ladd and Sean Cassidy and Grizzly Adams. What? Okay, so the girl who puts Grizzly Adams up in her locker door, um, that's the one that... I mean, she's she's accepting of people. <laughs> it's just it's kind of odd. Um the uh, the hostess ad is Captain Marvel meets the Dreadnought, and he's uh, saving a spaceship from the Kree and using hostess pies to do so. Uh, there's a safety wing you can get for your bike, which is this little plastic thing you attach to your bike that has a reflector on it, and it extends out 14 inches to the side of your, your rear wheel. Um, there's the various uh, flea market pages and you can get your uh, pizzazz magazine um, in the actual marvel bullpen bulletin uh, stan lee is talking about marvel super special number seven which i will not be covering but that's uh, sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band which is really i mean it's pretty much uh, a fantasy story but at the same time um, it's really expensive I won't be covering that just because I can't get my hands on it so uh, there's an ad for all the different Star Wars toys that were coming out and we're now gaining popularity and keeping the Star Wars name alive the toys and the comics 
kept that name alive for the children of the world. And so, I mean, I was one of those kids who I had my action figures, I had my comic books, and I had my Star Wars holiday special. And <laughs> if I can digress a little bit, um, I went uh, to my parents' place for Christmas, and uh, my gift for my mom was, was very nice, and it was kind of fun. Um, the The main gift that she gave me was, um, and she did this for, for my wife as well, um, so my wife, my sister, and my sister-in-law all got the same gift, and it had this riddle that was about, you know, name this president, and then they opened it up, and then that was the bill that they had um, in the box was this this nice, crisp, I think it was a $50 bill with Hamilton on it or something like that. Um, something like that being, no, it was a $50 bill. I know it was not Benjamin Franklin. But uh, what my mom gave to my brother and I um, was there was a question about, uh, the, the trivia question on the front of that was what bounty hunter was introduced in the star Wars holiday special in 1978 or whatever. Of course it's, it's, uh, Boba Fett. So you open it up and then it, the gift itself was two rolls of bounty, uh, two rolls of, of bounty, um, paper towels. Now they happen to be also star Wars, uh, themed, uh, paper towels, but you know, bounty cause bounty hunter. And then there was this page and it was like, which one of these is not a bounty hunter. And it showed these different pictures of Boba Fett. And then there was also a bill, taped to the the page and obviously Hamilton was not um the the uh, bounty hunter uh because Boba Fett you know there's four different pictures of Boba Fett well one of them was actually the animated Boba Fett from the holiday special and then uh, my mom had picked up uh the holiday special from eBay because she remembered watching this when I was a kid and and you know she remembered uh this this, this was a thing that existed and she gave she actually bought two off of eBay, one for myself and one for my brother. And so that part in and of itself is kind of funny, you know, you know, she remembered and, and she she got this off eBay and didn't realize what she was actually getting when she got this off of eBay. The thing that cracks me up the most about this was she actually sat through it and watched the whole thing by herself. Um and she she said, I can't believe I got this off of eBay. And not only that, I watched it, and it's so bad. It's so boring. And so I put my family through the endurance test to see if we could make it through. We did not make it through the holiday special. <laughs> so anyway, the Star Wars comic books, action figures, and the holiday special, those were the things that were getting us through between movies and, and as we were waiting for the next movie to come. Uh, the other thing that gets mentioned in uh, Stan Lee's uh, bullpen bulletin is uh, Battlestar Galactica, Super Special Number Eight. Um, those are the things that are kind of relevant to my interests here. They also talk about Pizzazz Magazine, um, and they they say, "Did did you hear that Marvel's latest entry in the humor field is becoming the magazine sensation of the year?" Fans describe Pizzazz as sort of a cross between crazy and the Lampoon. Pizzazz was originally planned just for the younger teenage reader, but you can't keep a dynamite idea under wraps for long, so now everybody's getting into it. It may sound like pizza with a couple extra Zs, but if you really want to blow your mind with the most colorful, slick paper mag in town, just call for Pizzazz, only 75 cents. Hurry, before we come to our senses. Yeah. 
Oh, cracked, mad, lampoon, and now pizzazz. So that's uh, what was in the advertisements for for uh, that 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 month. But the other thing that we get is this oversized edition, similar. Well, not just similar. I mean, it's an oversized Treasury edition, a Marvel Super Special, Battlestar Galactica, the official adaptation of the television sensation in full Marvel color. On the back, it says featuring a comics masterpiece, exclusive interviews, pinups by top Marvel artists. The cover itself, um, I've seen two different covers, actually three different covers of this. Um, two of them have the same artwork that I'm looking at here, and one of them has just some gorgeous painted, detailed artwork. The one I'm looking at right here is looks like almost a tracing of that painting, and then they just colored it like a comic book would be colored. Uh, and it's got a picture of the Battlestar Galactica in the middle, and there's a couple Vipers flying um, on the back cover, you've got the Vipers flying away and, and a base station in the back. On the front cover, you got a Viper that's being chased by Cylon Raiders and then some more Cylon Raiders that are, that are coming at you. Uh, it, it's a decent cover. It is not a great cover, though. Um, I look at this and I, I think it's kind of bland. But then there's that painted one. It looks so gorgeous. But uh, this one is... It says just Special Collector's Edition. And then it says MP... And then it says $1.50. This was not printed and distributed by Marvel. This, I believe, was printed and distributed by Charlton for what I was able to find to find out what this uh, MP was. And MP stood for um, Modern modern Promotions. And it, it was published or printed or distributed. I, I don't know exactly who did what. Marvel may have still printed it with, with their own printers. But um, by Charlton. Uh, as as one of their uh, getting on different, um, you know, different magazine racks and that sort of thing. Um, it was, so I found it very interesting that that happened. But uh, yeah, it says this issue distributed by Modern Promotions. It says that in the uh, stuff in the, the on the title page. The contents are Battlestar Galactica, which is the comic book adaptation, uh, which was um, written by Roger McKenzie with uh, Ernie Colon doing the artwork and the coloring. And Jim Novak did the lettering, Ralph Macchio, associate editor, Richard Marshall, the editor, and of course, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. But this actual volume here also had some articles. The Wizard of Hollywood's Dream Factory, Life in the Future, Battle Tactics, space Spaceships and Such, Hardware of the Future, and then Aliens and Robots. Plus, there are a number of uh, pinups, and the pinups are really, really nice. Um, now, and the artwork itself is also really nice, and it has this kind of unique coloring going on that really accents the artwork nicely and makes it look different than what I would consider like a Marvel House style. Uh, it's it's just different and interesting to look at, and then blown up this big. It's not. You know, it doesn't blow me away the same way that, say, um, 2001, that that edition just blows me away every time I look at it. Just just plain blows me away. But um, this this does the large size uh, definitely does a good service for the artwork and allows it to look just crisp and big. And um, it's nice. It, it's nice. So I'm, I, I said I'm not going to talk about the story, but the story is the um, 
the the movie. And when I say the movie, I mean the the first couple of episodes of Battlestar Galactica that were on TV. Uh, they also were in theaters uh, as as a full length movie uh, kind of presentation, but it was on TV, and and so that's the story that you're getting in here. And it's it's a good adaptation. We'll talk about the adaptation more when we get to those actual issues on those actual months. So when it comes to the other content, like I said, there's the, the pinups and there's the articles. And the articles themselves, uh, most of them, in fact, all but one of them, are, are written by Tom King, I believe is his name. No, Tom Rogers. And, I mean, no, no offense to Tom Rogers, but these are written... Um, basically to explain things you've already seen on the screen and in the comic. Um, it explains what you've seen of the uh, aliens and robots. Well, more will be coming, but for now, here we're going to talk about the Ovians and the Cylons because those are the ones you've seen so far on screen and in script form. And then he talks about battle tactics and how the Battlestar Galactica is like a, um, a aircraft carrier. And then on the spaceships and such, hardware of the future... Uh, it also talks about how um, Battlestar Galactica is like an aircraft carrier, and and it describes what you've already seen on the screen. It does give a little bit of interpretation as far as um, you know the Cylons will only do this because they only do what's necessary. But uh, and so some of this might actually come from the, the Battlestar Galactica series Bible. But I feel like whoever I mean whoever this Tom Rogers is, I feel like he didn't have a lot of. Um, a lot of access to that kind of information, you know, extra information that was not seen in the pilot episode or the first couple of episodes. Uh, and I also don't like that he says, um, you know, this, he likes to think that this takes place in the future. And I, I mean, clearly it's not in the future. I mean, the, when they find earth, it's 1980. It is the present day right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, those articles are really more the kind of thing that, when I was, you know, 12, I, I would probably would have really dug those articles and, and found them interesting. But reading them now, I'm just kind of thinking, well, yeah, I already knew this stuff because I've seen this many times. The interesting article is the one, um, it's called a, a conversation. It's, it's the Wizard of Hollywood's Dream Factory, a conversation with John Dixtra, interview by Steve Swires. And John Dixtra has worked on a number of different things. He worked on Star Wars, and he's a special effects guy. And he ended up becoming a producer. And it's interesting because it goes through his process of uh, how he became a producer on Battlestar Galactica. It also talks about some of the differences that go into doing work for television because of the timeline, but also because of the size of the television. And so their, their models are much, much bigger um, because small models would just get lost on the screen. And, and there's some really interesting stories in this interview as he's talking about just, just the whole process of what went into working on the Battlestar Galactica TV series. And so that's where I would say, you know, this is something I think you can get them fairly cheap. Um, but I think this is worth worth checking out. If you are a fan of Battlestar Galactica, if you're not a fan of Battlestar Galactica, then don't don't worry about it. I mean, you're, why would you read it in the first place? Um, to find if you if you just want to watch it or watch it, if you just want to read it just to read it, then go find you know the cheap issues. And and if this is one of those cheap issues you can find, then that's great. But um, for me, you know, this. I, I don't know how I got this. I believe I, I I think my wife's uncle found it and, and bought it and gave it to me. 
uh, along with a couple other treasury editions uh, from from a uh, antique store that he went to because they, they like to go antiquing and do and they actually create crafts out of things that they find in antique stores and, and flea markets and that. So I believe that's where I got this from, but it, it may not be. Uh, I, I just don't remember. I just have it. And so the other thing I have is the uh, small edition, the paperback size edition of, of Battlestar Galactica. And this is not something that comes up in the um, Mike's, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, but this has the same material in it. Uh, this has the comic book material, and it also has the Wizard of Hollywood's Dream Factory, Life in the Future, Battle Tactics, Spaceships and such, Aliens and Robots, and then it has um, the second half of the comic book material. This this is also fun. Uh, this is a lot of fun. I love these paperback size editions of comics, and there's actually some interesting things that they do with the way they have to format the page and move move the panels around and um but yeah I'm, I'm flipping through it right now if you can hear it through the microphone uh, but it's the same article uh some of the photos in the article are actually a little bit bigger than they were in the treasury edition just because of the way that they get laid out um there's some of those same uh pinups not as many but some and it's just it's it's fun. I, I like this this little volume here. Um, I used to read these paperback sized comics uh, in from my library, from my school library, and that was always fun. When I pull a, a book off the shelf and realize, oh hey, it's not a it's not a book, it's not a novel, it's a comic book. So that's that's fun. So I, I have this Battlestar Galactica, these first couple of issues, I have in three different formats right now. I have that the super big, super small. And then regular. So that brings me to the end of January 1979 cover date. Coming soon. Um, I've just pulled this out. Um, oh, look at this. So next month, we will be taking a look at Micronauts issue number two. We will be taking a look at Star Wars issue number 20. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 21. Godzilla 19. Uh, let's see. Human Fly number 18. And something that's brand new to me. Uh, when I got into this, part of my excitement was I was going to get be able to revisit ROM, revisit Micronauts. But in the process of collecting all of the different Marvel licensed comics that they did throughout the late 70s and early 80s, there's a series that I'm very excited to take a look at, and that is Shogun Warriors. And so Shogun Warriors, issue number one. And the other thing that's exciting to me about that is that I will get to listen to the end half of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast that, well, you see... <laughs> This is how it worked. Um, the early episodes of Earth Destruction Directive cover Ultraman episodes, Godzilla movies, all sorts of things that have to do with kaiju on the screen. And then the the second half of those episodes, he covered an issue of a comic book, starting with Shogun Warriors. 
Now, he in his current episodes of Earth, Earth Destruction Directive, he's actually covering Godzilla comics, and that's a lot of fun for me to listen to because I have just read them, and I'm slightly ahead of him right now with those. And so I'm reading ahead, and so when those episodes pop up, I'm like, yay, I've already read this. But with Shogun Warriors, I had not gotten around to reading it yet, and now I can go back into my iPod or my, well, my iPhone now, find those episodes where I only listened to the part where you talked about the movie stuff and listen to the Shogun Warriors comic stuff because I, I didn't want to get spoiled. So all that said, that's all I have for January 1979 cover date. And I am excited to take a look at some of the other stuff very, very soon. And, you know, uh, who knows? It's been a while since uh, episodes have gotten posted. And so um, hopefully it'll be quicker again. But for the time being, I am enjoying the other stuff that I'm reading that's not Marvel's licensed books. Uh, I'm enjoying, I, I actually really enjoyed reading uh, Marvel 2-in-1, number one, featuring Thing and Johnny Storm. That was a, that was a really, really good read. And maybe we'll talk about it on the, the Comic Book Time Machine regular feed. Uh, also, the the Swamp Monster stuff that I've been having fun reading. And yeah, so I'm still reading comics that I'm enjoying. Uh, it's just I, I need to get back into my, my Marvelous Cosmic Comics. Why? It's fun and I enjoy it. And that's what you should be doing when you're reading comics is having fun. So with all that said, I just want to say that as you go on your journey, wherever it is that you're going... I pray that you get there safely, and I bid you Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, what Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? 
Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. (laughs) 